G'day, mate. 40 here. We seem to have an active shooter situation in my neighborhood uh, each of the last two days. Uh, a Jewish man has been shot and killed. But not not sh- is shot. No, no one's been killed. So forgive me if I am a little bit rattled. Let's uh, get a report here. Separate attacks on two Orthodox Jews. They were both shot while leaving synagogues in the Pico-Robertson area within 24 hours. Both victims survived the attacks. KTLA's Jennifer McGraw is live with the latest. Jennifer. Sharon Sandy, LAPD just releasing a press release just moments ago saying that they do believe, in fact, both shootings were related to one suspect. That is the very latest from the LAPD. We're in this neighborhood, you know, and there's a lot of confusion, obviously, a lot of concern about both of these shootings targeting Jewish people and want this person caught. Helicopters overhead this Pico Robertson neighborhood searching for possibly two shooters wanted for gunning down two Jewish men. The first shooting happened Wednesday morning at 8.20 on Shenandoah near Pico. A man was shot while leaving the synagogue. And the second day, just two blocks away, another man shot after leaving prayer. This is a horrific hate crime. We have to find the criminals who perpetrated this act. Police are investigating the relation of the two, but to the Jewish community, they say the motive seems to be clear. Who else would come out and specifically shoot someone coming from a synagogue, coming out of a synagogue at a time of prayer? This, I feel, was targeted because they didn't ask for anything. They didn't, they just, somebody just came out of the bushes, shot him and ran away. Vivian Eisenstadt lives nearby and spoke with one of the victims who is well known around here. He is really being very Jewish about it, very grateful. He keeps saying it's a miracle that nothing happened to him and that it was just a through and through and, you know, he just wants to move on, but he's just really grateful. He keeps calling it a miracle that both of them were through and throughs and, and didn't cause people to die. But two in two days, Rabbi David Barron of Temple of the Arts says more needs to be done to protect our religious communities. He says many temples and synagogues have already been beefing up security. It's incomprehensible to me. We can't live in a state of fear and we can't allow these acts to uh, to create an environment of fear and uh, restriction from our freedom to worship. And police are still interviewing witnesses and looking through possible surveillance video to help lead to the arrest of this suspect. Anyone with any information should contact police. As for police presence, because of this situation, there will be a heightened security around the area. That's the very latest. We are. Okay, so traffic is obviously disrupted. Helicopters, police all over the place. A lot of people have a hard time getting home to Beverly Hills, West LA, Pico Robertson this evening. So second Jewish Orthodox Jewish man shot in two days in my neighborhood. Uh, apparently the suspect is a white guy. And apparently the, the same suspect for, for both attacks. All right, uh, Jewish Federation says no indication that either incident is a hate crime. Well, that's good to know. So the first shooting occurred Wednesday, Wednesday morning near the intersection of Shenandoah and Cassio Streets. So after this Orthodox Jewish man was coming out of synagogue, second shooting took place 
24 hours later this morning near Pickford and South Bedford, about two blocks away. So the first shooting happened 10 a.m. Wednesday. Man in his 40s was shot in the back while walking to his vehicle. Second shooting happened this morning at 8.30 a.m. A Orthodox Jewish man was walking home, got shot in the arm. Uh, both victims are alive, described seeing male shooting suspects and a sedan. Let's have a look here. Jewish Journal. Suspect is still at large, apparently driving an older model Hyundai sedan that's either black or, or brown. So victims are in stable condition. So white man wearing a black mask, black glasses, and a black sweater armed with a 9mm handgun. And so the older model Hyundai sedan, either black or, or brown. So very unusual to have you know Jewish men shot in Los Angeles, particularly in, in West Los Angeles. And this situation reminds me a little bit uh, about the the balloon story like why why did the balloon story just capture our imagination okay uh, the head of rabbi Aryeh Safran who heads this modern orthodox yeshiva university los angeles uh, high school says that uh, the high school is currently under a shelter in place as a precautionary measure students can't leave campus but it, this story reminds me a bit about the balloon story. So the great spy balloon freakout, New York Times articles, right? These are not a safe time to be a weather balloon. So Joe Biden is now admitting that uh, U.S. military using very expensive equipment was, was shooting down things that were probably completely innocuous the last three knockdowns. So maybe weather balloon, something like that. Why did we soar into some kind of full balloon, full blown balloon freakout? Right? Why was why did we go from zero to oh my god so quickly? Because we are instinctively wired to worry about new risks and risks with a lot of uncertainty. So having, you know, a gunman in the neighborhood, you know, targeting uh, Jewish men, Orthodox Jewish men, yeah, it's kind of an unprecedented situation in my neighborhood yes i plan to go out for, for for sabbath i plan to go to synagogue but i mean this is also a pragmatic community so if for some reason we're told to shelter in place we will shelter in place i, I can't imagine that we'll be told to stay home so apparently uh ethan ralph just got swatted by Mexican police. Thoughts and prayers for Ethan. No. 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 Yes. They call because they think it's... They think it's funny because they know I'm on the air. And they think it's funny to see guys come in here and mess with me. Yeah, it's live right now. Are you a YouTuber? Yeah, I'm a YouTuber. Yeah. What is your page? Um. Well, I'm banned off official YouTube, but um, I could write it down maybe for you. Um. Cozy TV slash Ethan Ralph. Yeah, I'm a YouTuber. That's what I do for a living, though. YouTube. They call in pranks and stuff to try to like. 
get me in trouble. Oh, but basically. right now, I, I think that you better get tipsy, okay? So you're smoking to the weed a little bit. Maybe use drugs. So allegations that Ethan Ralph was under the influence. So trying to stay on top of uh, the shootings in my neighborhood of Orthodox Jewish men. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. We haven't taken a poll, but it's possible on this Thursday evening, you may be wondering what the hell is going on in our country. There are so many unanswered questions, some of them lingering. How, for example, did senile hermit Joe Biden get 15 million more votes than his former boss, rock star crowd? Primarily interested about what's going on in my neighborhood. Let's fear uh, and concern in L.A.'s largely Jewish Pico Robertson neighborhood tonight after two consecutive shootings of Orthodox Jewish men in as many days. Fox 11's Phil Schumann is there live. Phil, what did we just find out? Well, we know that both shooting victims were approached by a gunman as they walked on the sidewalk here in the residential area south of Pico, uh, leaving Orthodox synagogues, two of many in the area. Police initially said the suspects had two different descriptions, but now they're saying they believe it's the same man they're looking for in both shootings. This morning's shooting happened outside the Orthodox Jewish synagogue on Pico, known as the Pinto Center. The victim, a man in his 70s, was walking towards his car when a gunman, a white man in a black mask, shot him and drove off in an older model Hyundai. It's definitely nerve-wracking. It's very scary. Rabbi Avi Gruen works at the Pinto Center, grew up in this Pico Robertson neighborhood. I don't remember any other time in the past where we've had uh, people, just people in the community being shot at, especially leaving, uh, leaving synagogue. So it's for sure, uh, definitely a lot of people are alert. Uh, nervous about it. You ever feel like a target because you're Jewish? Uh, not so much, but maybe now. <laughs> you know, in general, you feel pretty safe walking around here. Not anymore. Yesterday morning, another shooting outside one of the many synagogues on Pico. Another Orthodox Jew, a man in his 40s, shot by a suspect described as an Asian male with a mustache. No vehicle description. There aren't enough cops in the area, so we have to be fully aware aware of what's and going cautious. on. For now, the LAPD says the two shootings are not related, not necessarily hate crimes, which Vivian Eisenstadt says seems ridiculous. Eisenstadt lives in the neighborhood, is in the process of getting her CCW, a permit to carry a concealed weapon. They're not stealing anything, and they're not holding them up for anything. They're just randomly shooting them and then jumping into cars. So what else could you deduce from that? Other than that Jewish people are being targeted. Yes. Jew haters, one area resident uh, said that's the best way to describe it. Now, again, since we recorded that story, Alex and Christine, the police literally within the past few minutes, as you mentioned, uh, have updated that information to say that they believe the same suspect described as an Asian man with a mustache is the shooter in both instances, but no details on the vehicle. There are many cameras out on Pico, of course, and some in residential areas here, no doubt aiding detectives in their investigation. Major crimes has taken over. The mayor's office is aware. The ADL is issuing a statement of concern, and the LAPD says they will be increasing patrols in this area immediately. Live in Pico. Okay, so some of the more hysterical approaches 
to events like this, you know, say, oh, Jewish lives are so cheap. But since World War II, Jewish lives have been incredibly expensive. So Jews enjoy the most prosperity and safety that we've ever had in, you know, in all of 4,000 years of Jewish history, essentially, living in, in the United States today. So initially, the description was a white guy, now an Asian guy. And what the heck is, is going on here? So think about the balloon story and then think about this story. How does how do these threats go from zero to, oh, my God, so quickly? Because we're instinctively wired to worry about new risks and risks with a lot of uncertainty. This is New York Times column that I just read. So these floating balloons are being referred to as unidentified aerial objects. Officials admit they don't know if more of them are out there. So we tend to worry more about risks that remind us of things that we've already learned to fear, such as getting shot or nuclear war. Spy balloon comes amidst growing tension between the United States and China. Also, we have a new you know, right-wing government in Israel that's highly unpopular around the world. Whatever goes on in the Jewish state is going to have you know, repercussions to Jews walking down the street in Australia, Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, England, all, all over the world. So the... You know, Chinese spy balloons that uh, many people have been freaking out about, you know, very much remind remind me from my history readings about 1957 when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1. That was a metal ball with four antenna transmitting weak signals into space, the first human-made satellite. And many Americans were all scanning the skies and worrying, just as many of us in West L.A., Beverly Hills, Pico Robertson are like, where the heck is this shooter? World War II, Japanese meteorologists tapped the jet stream to float 9,300 balloons with anti-personnel bombs and incendiary devices toward Alaska and the West Coast. They wanted to set the Northwest ablaze. About 300 of them landed, mostly in damp forest, did little damage. Now, the balloon freakout taps into our fear and our fascination with the prospect of aliens paying Earth a visit. So these unidentified anomalous phenomena, that's what the Pentagon are referring to these UFO devices, unidentified aerial phenomena. And the key word is unidentified, mysterious. We don't know what these three things were that were shut down, where they came from, what they were doing. So we tend to worry more about risks. The less we understand them, the less empowered we feel to protect ourselves. So if you're bothered by something, you can finally give it a name. Like I had really bad health. When I was 21, 22, once I was able to give a name to a chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, I immediately kind of relaxed inside. At least it had a name. So risk perception fuels our fears. And also people in the news business and people in social media realize that what worries us gets our attention. So by blaring alerts and hyping the worry, the news media and social media uh, people can heighten awareness and further brighten the blip on our emotional risk radar. So we end up overfearing some things that arouse psychological fear, and we also sometimes dangerously underfear other things. We tend to, generally speaking, act, operate, live in the world without an accurate level of awareness of how dangerous the world around us is. So we also comfortably engage many risks that worry us less because we take them on voluntarily, like smoking or texting and driving. 
So this is from a retired Harvard instructor, the author of How Risky Is It Really? Why Our Fears Don't Always Match the Facts. I'm sure for Barack Obama. Results like that would seem to defy the laws of known physics and qualify instead as a miracle. Was the 2020 election a miracle? Honestly, we don't know. We don't expect to get an answer to it tonight. So let's move instead to more immediate questions like all these weird things shooting through the sky. Okay, there was nothing weird about uh, Joe Biden's victory in 2020. There was a 2% swing against Donald Trump in the suburbs, and that accounted both for the Democrats' successful 2018 midterm elections, also for their 2020 presidential triumph. High over the United States and Canada that nobody seems able to positively identify. Should we be worried about these things? And then what about our infrastructure, the steel and concrete parts of America that the Biden administration has shown strange contempt for, possibly because they were built by those dreaded white construction workers that Mayor Pete dislikes so much? Our critical infrastructure appears to be falling apart. Is that a problem? Or can we, in the bright new transhumanist future our leaders envision, feed ourselves with McKinsey consultants alone? And if we can, how do they taste? You may be wondering all of this, or maybe you're not wondering any of it because you have no clue what we're talking about because the media hasn't told you about it. A press corps that's willing to spend a full week ignoring a toxic mushroom cloud over Ohio will ignore pretty much anything. So in case you're not up to date, here's a partial recap of events. Last night, there was a massive and as yet unexplained fire at a plant nursery just south of Orlando. The fire burned more than two acres of plastic planters. Now, burning plastic releases a lot of bad chemicals, including dioxins, which you don't want, and that's why you don't do this in your fireplace. When a single plastic beaker melted in Stanford Science Building last year, the school evacuated the area. Okay, here's a thread from journalist Lewis Keane. And yeah, I've, I've been to all these places. I'm familiar with these streets and these synagogues. I'm familiar with Lewis Keane and his mother's a journalism instructor. Second day in a row that someone has been shot in Pico Robertson on their way home from synagogue. Today's victim is at the scene telling officers what happened. Judging by the number of cops, a couple of dozen shootings are likely to be investigated as connected. Both were drive-by shootings of Jewish men two blocks apart. The FBI is not currently involved. First news truck has arrived. Today's shooting occurred here at the intersection of Pickford and Bedford. Drowning blocks have been cordoned off. Now we've got an officer from the LAPD saying the incidents are not related because they are a different car. Hyundai today versus Honda yesterday. Different suspect description, white male versus Asian male. Neither shooting is being investigated as a hate crime. Detective in person says it's too early to say whether the incidents are connected. Could not confirm that it was a Hyundai used today and not a Honda. Different officers at the scene either saying they can't confirm what make the car was or they can't share that. Police are not going anywhere. Everything we know, two men were walking home from prayer services. Right, here's a map detailing just how close the two shootings were to each other, less than 24 hours apart. So I've walked these streets hundreds of times. Okay, no car identified in the first shooting, car in the second instance, a Hyundai. Police narrative on the Pico Robertson shootings has changed multiple times over the course of the day. Anything regarding whether this incident was a hate crime, whether the incidents are connected, or even the suspect description should be considered subject to change. Now the LAPD news release says detectives believe the Pico Robertson shootings may have involved the same suspect. 
Now he's described as a male Asian with a mustache and a goatee driving a possible white compact vehicle. Confirmed now. Same car, same gun. Investigation is now in the hands of the LAPD Major Crimes Division. So definitely keep, keep an eye on what's happening in my neighborhood. But outside Orlando, there was no evacuation. Residents were told to stay in their homes. None of the environmentalists in the Biden administration, the people who claim ostentatiously to care about the environment, said anything about it. Nor did they have a lot to say about what happened in Tucson on Tuesday. A tractor trailer carrying nitric acid rolled over on I-10. Nitric acid is a carcinogen. Within two hours of the crash, authorities evacuated a small number of residents. They told everybody living within a mile to shelter in place. Then two hours after that, they lifted the shelter-in-place order. But then, the next morning, authorities announced that they had, quote, reinstated the shelter-in-place order for a one-mile perimeter around the incident. And then they told residents to, quote, turn off heaters and or air conditioning systems that bring in outside air. Ooh, outside air. No air for you. Well, why did they give this order? Because the first order, it turns out, was wrong. It wasn't safe for people to move back into their homes. So just as in East Palestine, Ohio, authorities, for whatever reason, expose people to dangerous chemicals. If this is incompetence, there seems to be an awful lot of it lately. Then today, it nearly happened again. A freight train derailed about 30 miles west of downtown Detroit. It's a Norfolk Southern train. That's the same company that operated the train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. 30 cars went off the tracks. Fortunately, if the information that we are getting tonight is accurate, and we can't vouch that it is, the car containing liquid chlorine did not overturn, apparently. So much of the information about these shootings in my neighborhood is here on, on Twitter. Right, second day in a row someone's been shot on the way home. Right, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL is extending his thoughts and prayers. Jewish media is all over it. Apparently, same suspect. ADL Los Angeles has spoken out. Okay, ABC7. LAPD needs help tracking down two suspects responsible for shootings of two Jewish men on their way home from synagogue in Pico Robertson. So there are more Jewish properties targeted in this area, one of the most heavily Jewish in America. This video shows a suspect throwing cinder blocks into a Jewish-owned office next to a kosher supermarket club mart near Pico and Robertson. For years, I've been begging Jewish Angelinos to invest in a local paper that actually covers L.A. It's been hours since a Jewish man was shot in Pico Robertson. So this is, yeah, one of the most visible Jewish neighborhoods, like one of the top two visibly Jewish neighborhoods, maybe the number one Jewishly visible neighborhood in California. So the suspects who committed these shootings still at large. Thank God 
Jonathan Greenblatt's heart is with the Jewish community in Pico Robertson. And good to know people are closely monitoring these incidents. So that is, however you slice it, an awful lot of drama on our roads and rails in a single week. Who's in charge of our roads and rails anyway? Well, that would be the Secretary of Transportation. That would be Pete Buttigieg. He's in charge. He was asked about it today. In response, he pointed out that train derailments are not a big deal. Settle down. They're very common. Train derailments happen on average nearly three times every day. Uh, look, rail safety is something that uh, uh, that has evolved a lot over the years, but there's clearly more that needs to be done because uh, while this uh, horrible situation ha has gotten a particularly high amount of attention, there are roughly 1,000 cases a year of a train derailing. <laughs> Wait a second. You think East Palestine is a big deal? A thousand trains derail every year in the United States, says Pete Buttigieg, who presumably has the stats on it. Did you know that? Are you okay with a thousand trains a year derailing in your country? Don't a lot of these trains carry highly dangerous chemicals through highly populated areas? Yeah. So if you were Pete Buttigieg, put yourself in his tiny position for a moment. If you were him, wouldn't fixing that, this ongoing disaster, be your very first priority? Well, of course it would be, but you're not Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg doesn't care about trains derailing. He cares about equity. Trains derailing, that's fine. You're fine. You're so fine that the people who show up to test the air and the water after a train derailment are wearing hazmat suits because the air and water are perfectly safe as long as you're wearing a hazmat suit. See, there's a simple solution to this. Stop whining. Now, what does Norfolk Southern think of all this? We'd love to know, but we don't know because the company skipped the town hall last night in East Palestine, Ohio. Hundreds of locals had gathered to ask obvious and, for them, pressing questions like, why are thousands of fish and animals dying? Okay, let's uh, try to turn things in a more positive direction. Uh, just reading, listening to the New Yorker profile of Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie is still defiant, guys, and he will not be stopped. So it, it just suddenly struck me like why is this such a familiar genre won't be stopped there's there's a whole genre of news won't be stopped you know the the plucky underdog who won't be stopped all right so three keys i just put won't be stopped in quotes into google news three keys to minnesota beating penn state guys minnesota won't be stopped anti-union laws won't be stopped Uh, Chinese boorishness will continue if they won't be stopped. Statement from the Philippines. Uh, out of Florida, people who want to do harm to others won't be stopped by the gun permit requirement. Should the law stop Lydia Thorpe from jumping ship? Her departure from the Green Party in Australia, the Greens, won't be stopped. I work in a law firm and still wear micro mini skirts. It's a bad habit, but I won't be stopped. What a courageous young woman. I mean, she's, she's willing to admit that it's, it's a bad habit, but she won't be stopped. Right? Maybe we, maybe we can learn from her. Right? Whoa, 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 whoa. 
Even though I have a job in the legal field, I still wear my micro mini skirts. Victoria admits she still wears micro mini skirts to work at a law firm. She doesn't plan on, on stopping. These bloody ads from the Sun won't stop either. She posted a risque video to her TikTok admitting her bad habit, so she may sport a business look on top, but her bottoms are a bit more trendy. Can't be stopped. Powerful. We we can all learn from from Victoria. She she won't be stopped. May may we all may we all you know benefit from her courage. Ten reasons why ESG, so equity and other good things, sustainable stuff, ESG. Ten reasons why ESG won't be stopped, guys. Biden's student debt relief plan won't be stopped by the GOP. Inspiring young entrepreneur won't be stopped. America's favorite show, Yellowstone, won't be stopped. Indiana Pacers guard Tyrese Halliburton won't be stopped by more defensive attention. Sergeant Michael Bloom won't be stopped. I know a Michael Bloom. Okay, but it's not that Michael Bloom. Anyway, it won't be stopped. American Jews won't be stopped from traveling to Ukraine for Rosh Hashanah. Black women have always moved this country forward on election day. We won't be stopped. The Dark Knight won't be stopped. Jalea Williams, a female basketball player, won't be stopped. A bomb cyclone. Santa Claus won't be stopped by a bomb cyclone. Stephen Cohen, owner of the New York Mets, he won't be stopped as Major League Baseball tries to slow his Mets' ambition. Okay, Big Bash League. All right, cricket, T20, cricket in, in Australia. Uh, new COVID rules mean players won't be stopped from playing. Elden Ring speedrunners won't be stopped by a nerf. NATO expansion won't be stopped by Turkey. Kremlin won't be if Kremlin if the Kremlin are not stopped in Ukraine, guys. Here next to Baltic states and then Poland. Security expert. Cancer care won't be stopped in the United Kingdom for nurse strikes. Greg Norman says that uh, his new golf league won't be stopped. Cristiano Ronaldo says he won't be stopped from doing explosive interview. Uh, some project in India won't be stopped. The green hydrogen revolution has started and it won't be stopped. Climate change won't be stopped by 593 pages of green tape. Bobcat won't be stopped by a pandemic. Users of Microsoft Office won't be stopped from connecting to Microsoft 365 if they have older software. The John Bazalone Memorial Parade, right? He's an American war hero in World War II, won't be stopped. Insulate Britain won't be stopped by people who think you can grow concrete. Okay, Hamilton, right? Lewis Hamilton has vowed that Mercedes will not be stopped in our tracks. 
She's a wonder won't be stopped. That's a horse. Sasha Banks from The Mandalorian won't be stopped. Charlie Worsham won't be stopped in new song Fist Through This Town. California flash mob robbers won't be stopped. Biden says Iran won't be stopped with no credible military option. Uh, Work won't be stopped on Mercedes-Benz cars. There's no silver bullet to stop to solve the channel migrant crisis, the channel between Europe and the United Kingdom. The Green Revolution, once again, has started. Guys, it won't be stopped. Why go to Ukraine for Rosh Hashanah? Don't understand the connection between the Holy Day and Ukraine. So why do so many Jews go to Ukraine for Rosh Hashanah? It has to do with tradition, history. And they won't be stopped, guys. На жаль, ми вимушені вакуумно покрити цю інформацію, тому що ми розуміємо, що є повномасштабне вторгнення Росії до України, і ворог моніторить інформацію. Okay. Hasidic Jew, Jewish pilgrims celebrate Rosh Hashanah in Ukraine. Won't be stopped. So Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty is funded by the American government. These Jews won't be stopped. Okay. Also looked up the defiance of. So New Yorker's got a long article, The Defiance of Salman Rushdie. So the defiance of, put it into quotes into Google News, Black Joy as Black Resistance, LeBron James, and the defiance of complacency, competitive as F, top five iconic black Olympians. Polish officials denounce the Euro- European community taking Poland to the EU top court, EC, I don't know, EC, the beauty and terror of skiing. That's the defiance of traversing a mountain. Israeli government legalizes nine outposts. U.S. still in dark over mystery flying objects. Uh, The defiance of international law. So a lot of defiance, right? People are not going to be stopped. They're just filled with defiance. And I'm here to cover the resistance. I'd like to think that uh, we're all part of the, the resistance and this community, may I dare say it, we, we won't be stopped. Right? The defiance of Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie, guys, he won't be stopped. Right, this is a New Yorker article. 
profiles. Published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline, Defiance. Despite a near-fatal stabbing and decades of death threats, Salman Rushdie won't stop telling stories. Written by David Remnick. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a little tired of this journalistic genre. So-and-so won't be stopped. All right? She won't be stopped wearing micro miniskirts. Salman Rushdie won't be stopped telling stories. Did, did you realize that Salman Rushdie made some, you know, major apology for the things he wrote in Satanic Verses and you know, absolutely groveled before the Ayatollahs? But uh, didn't really work. Anyway, the defiance of Salman Rushdie, he won't stop telling stories, guys. Narrated by Vikas Adam. When Salman Rushdie turned 75 last summer, he had every reason to believe that he had outlasted the threat of assassination. A long time ago, on Valentine's Day, 1989, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Rahullah Khomeini, declared Rushdie's novel, The Satanic Verses, blasphemous and issued a fatwa ordering the execution of its author and all those involved in its publication. Rushdie, a resident of London, spent the next decade in a fugitive existence under constant police protection. But after settling in New York in 2000, he lived freely, insistently unguarded, he refused to be terrorized. So I was just thinking, just imagine them doing a story like that about Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson won't back down. Right? He won't be stopped. He refuses to be terrorized. Or imagine them doing a story like that about Rush Limbaugh or, I don't know, Jared Taylor or Peter Brimlow or Heather McDonald or Amy Wax. Amy Wax won't back down she won't be stopped she refuses to be terrorized but uh, it's always plucky people on the left who won't back down won't stop telling their stories singing their songs wearing their micro miniskirts there were times though when the lingering threat made itself apparent and not merely on the lunatic reaches of the internet in 2012 during the annual autumn gathering of world leaders at the united nations I joined a small meeting of reporters with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, and I asked him if... Just imagine if the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center or, the, you know, one of these other you know, anti-racist organizations, Hope Not Hate, Hope Not Hate issues fatwa against Jared Taylor. I mean, that, that would be terrible, God forbid. They never do such thing. The good people at uh, Hope Not Hate and uh, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, they never do such a thing. Yeah, and and you're probably thinking, oh, that would be funny as f, man. The Southern Poverty Law Center and Hope Not Hate started you know, pronouncing fatwas against uh, racists or you know people who had more ethnic pride than is socially acceptable, people who had stronger in-group identities than is socially acceptable. And you're thinking, oh, that would be funny, man. That would not be funny. That would be illegal that would be morally heinous and the, the good people in these anti-hate anti-racism organizations would never do such a thing so don't even compare them to the ayatollahs of iran multi-million dollar bounty that an iranian foundation had placed on rushdie's head had been rescinded ahmadinejad smiled with a glint of malice salman rushdie where is he now he said there is no news of him is he in the united states if he's in the U.S., you shouldn't broadcast that for his own safety. Wow, that, that, that'd be 
absolutely unfathomable if Hope Not Hate or the Southern Poverty Law Center or some of the you know, left-wing anti-racism, anti-hate, some Antifa organization started uh, speaking that way. That, that, would, that would never happen, right? Because you know, people with strong in-group identities won't be stopped. We continue to live in defiance. Hope Not Hate won't be stopped. The defiance of the in-group identity. Within a year, Ahmadinejad was out of office and out of favor with the mullahs. Rushdie went on living as a free man. The years passed. He wrote book after book, taught, lectured, traveled, met with readers, married, divorced, and became a fixture in the city that was his adopted home. If he ever felt the need for some vestige of anonymity, he wore a baseball cap. Recalling his first few months in New now, yeah, just imagine them doing a story like this about Tucker Carlson <laughs> or, you know, Jared Taylor. If you ever needed anonymity, he, he walked around, you know, with, with a baseball cap because he would not be stopped. New York, Rushdie told me, people were scared to be around me. I thought the only way I can stop that is to behave as if I'm not scared. I have to show them there's nothing to be scared about. One night. He went out to dinner with Andrew Wiley, his agent and friend, at Nick. So operating as though there's nothing to be scared of, uh, sometimes a good strategy, sometimes a, a bad strategy. Right, best to live in reality and have a, you know an appropriate level of fear. Right, Lewis Hamilton says nothing will stop him from speaking out after new rules have been imposed about uh, clamping down on political statements. But thank God, Lewis Hamilton, the great racing car driver for Mercedes, he will not, 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 not be stopped. Tony's, an extravagantly conspicuous restaurant in East Hampton. The painter, Eric Fischel, stopped by their table and said, shouldn't we all be afraid and leave the restaurant? Well, I'm having dinner, Rushdie replied. You can do what you like. Fischl hadn't meant to offend, but sometimes there was a tone of derision in press accounts of Rushdie's indefatigable presence on the New York nightlife scene, as Laura M. Holson put it in the Times. Some people thought he should have adopted a more austere posture toward his predicament. Would Solzhenitsyn have gone on stage with Bono or danced the night away at Mumba? Ah, chat says, Horty's hair makes him look like an Ellen DeGeneres-type lesbian. Thank you. Mandatory haircut every 30 days, bro. Well, I, I'm under attack here, man. Like Orthodox Jewish men are getting shot in my neighborhood. I didn't have time to put water on the old hair, slick it back. Right? I'm under attack, bro. For Rushdie, keeping a low profile would be capitulation. He was a social being and would live as he pleased. He even tried to render the fatwa ridiculous. Six years ago, he played himself in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm in which Larry David provokes threats from Iran for mocking the Ayatollah while promoting his upcoming production, Fatwa the Musical. David is terrified, but Rushdie's character assures him that life under an edict of execution, though it can be scary, also makes a man alluring to women. It's not exactly you. It's the Fatwa wrapped around you, like sexy pixie dust, he says. With every public gesture, it appeared, Rushdie was determined to show that he would not merely survive, but flourish, at his desk and on the town. 
There was no such thing as absolute security, he wrote in his third-person memoir, Joseph Anton, published in 2012. There were only varying degrees of insecurity. He would have to learn to live with that. He well understood that his demise would not require the coordinated efforts of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or Hezbollah. A cracked loner could easily do the job. But I had come to feel that it was a very long time ago and that the world moves on, he told me. In September 2021, Rushdie married the poet and novelist Rachel Eliza Griffiths, whom he'd met six years earlier. Okay, so Salman Rushdie right, doesn't share our politics. He's... Not exactly a big fan of Western civilization. He's definitely a man of the left, you know, big anti-racism crusader. But I think we have to stand with Salman, right? You can't allow outside groups to shut down freedom of speech. It's like when I played soccer, right? Sometimes I made an errant tackle, but no one's ever gotten up and choked me. But uh, friends of mine playing soccer with, let's say, out groups, right, making an elementary tackle, and suddenly, you know, this immigrant will get up and just choke you out. So civilization has to maintain standards, and one of the standards of Western civilization is that we don't murder people for what they say. So however loathsome I find Salman Rushdie's politics, all right, I support freedom of speech, and I do not support importing people who you know stab people and shoot people and try to kill people for things that they say. Why? But executives at Norfolk Southern didn't show up at the event. Why? Because they were worried for their own safety. Why is the company not here? Because they're scared for their safety. Hundreds of anxious residents packed a school gym here in East Palestine on Wednesday night, looking for answers almost two weeks after a huge train derailment released hazardous chemicals into their town, contaminating much of the surrounding area. But there were notable absences from the town hall meeting, including the rail operator, Norfolk Southern. Also not attending, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. The mayor says he's had limited contact with the White House, leaving folks here frustrated, angry, and complaining about a lack of information from the feds and Norfolk Southern. State officials and the EPA say the water and air are both safe, but residents here tell a different story. They say they've been getting sick, and so have their pets. It's so safe, we're not going there. Our oxygen tanks are empty. And by the way, they're... Okay, sounds like a good time to reflect on the temptations of Karl Schmidt. Even as he began delivering lectures in Munich, the first general elections of the Reich saw the Weimar coalition immediately lose their majority, illuminating the shaky foundations of the Republic. The challenge facing Germany, as Schmidt increasingly saw it, stemmed directly from the weakness engendered by the hesitancy of liberal proceduralism and parliamentary government. At the end of the summer of 1920, Schmidt had, not coincidentally, finished one of his first major works, Dictatorship, which would be published in early 1921. In it, he explores the history of dictatorship, from its original Roman usage to the wartime state of siege used in Germany during the war. In doing so, he lays out an important distinction between two forms of dictatorship, a commissary dictatorship, in which a dictator is chosen and granted special powers in order to defend the existing constitutional structure of the state, and a sovereign dictatorship, in which a dictator uses his powers to wholly replace the constitution. Either way, 
To Schmidt, a dictatorship can be democratically legitimate if it fulfills the state's obligation to protect, even if it acts beyond the law in making necessary decisions. Given that, as he would later explain elsewhere, the endeavor of a normal state consists above all in assuring total peace within the state and its territory. To create tranquility, security, and order, and thereby establish the normal situation, is the prerequisite for legal norms to be valid. Every norm presupposes a normal situation, and no norm can be valid in an entirely abnormal situation. In theory, the dictator re-establishes the normal situation, and therefore legal norms. What Schmidt was most interested in at this time, however, was the broader concept of sovereignty. Who is truly sovereign? Who is the one who actually has the power to decide to act? The answer he settled on, first in dictatorship, and then more directly in Political Theology, published in 1922, would become one of his most famous lines, Sovereign is he who decides the exception. Okay, we're in an exceptional state in my neighborhood right now with a gunman on the loose, two Orthodox Jewish men shot in the past two days. But who decides the state of exception? All right, coronavirus came along, and suddenly we were in a state of exception where many rights that we took for granted were just taken away. But then when people wanted to go out and protest against police violence and anti-racism, then right, all those rights were restored. So you got your rights back if you were participating in like left-wing uh, terrorist protest. So overturning the rule of law what was amazing about the Black Lives Matter Antifa reign, reign of terror that uh, launched in May of 2020, what was amazing is that our elite signed on with this reign of terror, this, this reign of, of astronomical crime rates, murder rates, buildings being looted, burned, businesses being destroyed. And you know, Fortune 500 companies were funding this. They were funding Black Lives Matter. They were, they were funding terrorism. They were supporting the destruction of our society and you know this this massive uh, you know rates of of crime. So you know what the heck is going on in your society when when your elites are all on board with seemingly the trashing of large parts of your society? There are elderly, low-income people on crutches. There, we don't feel safe around them. But from the perspective of the people who live in East Palestine, it looks a little different. You would think if you live in the United States and you send by force at gunpoint half of your annual pay to Washington, someone in Washington would care when your town is poisoned by a train derailment. Oh, but you thought wrong. Who do you think you are, Ukrainian? Nobody cares about you. Is this Kiev? No, it's Ohio. Shut up. The Biden administration has other priorities, by the way, like shooting down $300 weather balloons with $400,000 missiles. And yes, apparently they did that. Joe Biden himself admitted it today. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. <laughs> That's the quote. Intelligence community, air quotes now required. That's the intelligence community's assessment. Oh, their kids sent a balloon up and we sent a sidewinder after it. Mission accomplished. Okay. So what happens when you're living in a state of exception? How to understand it? 
As in Schmidt's view, it isn't humanly possible to write law that can completely predict and account for in advance every possible situation. A legal framework must necessarily provide for the means to handle exceptional circumstances, that is, situations beyond what is written in law. In such circumstances, a state of exception exists, whether formally declared or not, in which the law as written can no longer apply. Much as Schmidt experienced while in Munich, states of exception and dictatorships often go hand in hand. The dictator emerges to resolve the state of exception by personifying the law when the law cannot mechanistically provide pre-made decisions. This is the case whether the dictator is put forward by the constitutional state or by the raw will of the people. But the dictator isn't necessarily sovereign, the one with ultimate sovereignty is not he who handles exceptions, but he who decides what counts as an exception. With these concepts, Schmidt had nearly finished building the foundations that would inform his lifelong political theory of the state and the political future of Germany. He was, however, still only a relatively obscure young academic with an intellectual theory for justifying a strong state, but no political influence of his own. This would begin to change as Schmidt moved to take up increasingly prestigious positions over the following years, first in Bonn and then in Berlin. He would there increasingly begin to travel among the intellectuals of Germany's conservative revolution, a loosely affiliated movement of reactionary and conservative nationalists, such as the historian Oswald Spengler and the war hero and arch-conservative writer Ernst Janger. It was Janger in particular who, in addition to becoming a close personal friend, would first help propel Schmidt into circles of real political influence. By the start of 1930, Schmidt began to be asked by state ministers to write legal opinions on the justifiable scope of emergency decrees. The economic situation in Germany was collapsing, and the Republic was growing desperate for any means to remain standing. By mid-1932, the Weimar Reich had reached a point of acute crisis, with blood again regularly being spilled in the streets as the Communists, National Socialists, and Reichauer battled each other ceaselessly. In June, Reich President Hindenburg appointed Franz von Papen as Chancellor, and then, in July, made him Reich Commissar of Prussia as well, with a military state of exception declared in Berlin and Brandenburg. The Social Democrats challenged the legality of... Right, so for most people, their, their primary concern is survival, right? Their, their, their primary concern is uh, not the enjoying of their constitutional rights. What people most want to do is survive and they're usually willing to give up quite a few rights to survive. ...of this unprecedented appointment. And suddenly Schmidt found himself given the task of defending it in court as the crown jurist for the Reich. Schmidt argued that the Reich had a duty to act against parties that represented enemies of the state in order to prevent the outbreak of civil war, and emphasized that Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution provided extremely broad powers for the Reich president to, if necessary, dissolve parliament and rule by presidential decree alone, i.e. through commissary dictatorship. Simultaneously, he would make the argument, formalized in his pamphlet Legality and Legitimacy, 1932, that preserving an equal chance for gaining political power, in fact required that those opposition parties judged to be enemies of the Constitution be legally excluded from political participation on this, the Federal Republic of Germany to this day maintains that Schmidt was right. With this, Schmidt succeeded in a provisional legal defense of dictatorship, though the case would continue into the autumn of 1932 and end ambiguously. 
Poppen began considering a plan, based on Schmidt's arguments, for the declaration of a state of emergency and general national rule by presidential decree. So Karl Schmidt wanted to make the two totalitarian extreme parties, both the right and the left, the Nazis and the communists, wanted to make them illegal. In essence, you know, no liberty for the enemies of liberty. At the same time, Schmidt was tasked with beginning to himself draft a new constitution for Germany. Neither of those plans would unfold as intended, however. The much more radical National Socialist Nazi Party gained ground in summer elections, and the stupid Poppen hesitated too long, according to Schmidt. The emergency plan was put on hold, and their new constitution never got off the ground. When Poppen was then deposed as chancellor by Kurt von Schleicher in December 1932, Schmidt found himself back outside of power, disgruntled, and giving up hope for the Reich's survival. He began to speak of the need to somehow build not just a strong state, but a total state capable of protecting itself against all enemies, internal and external. When two months later, Schlesier's position as chancellor was handed over to Adolf Hitler, through presidential decree, Schmidt would find his chance to follow this path to its end. But back in our present era, it may be worth considering, did a state of exception arrive in America in 2020? More than one politician and public intellectual did call for the exceptional deployment of military force to restore order amid a summer of uncontained violence, but none of these calls were heeded. Right, that was Senator Tom Cotton. So we definitely went into a state of exception, first with COVID, and then an exception for the rules restricting the spread of COVID, right? If you're an anti-racist activist, then you got absolved from having to follow the rules that the rest of us had to. Despite years of loud claims that he deeply desired any possible opportunity to declare a dictatorship, then-President Donald Trump either decided against announcing any state of exception in response to the riots or found himself unable to actually make that sovereign decision. A clear state of exception nonetheless did soon arrive, however, if in response to a threat of an entirely different kind, the COVID-19 pandemic. In the name of protecting public safety, Citizens' normal civil liberties, up to and including bodily autonomy and freedom of association, were suspended for an indefinite duration. Normal democratic procedures were superseded. Opposition to these emergency powers was monitored and policed by the national security state. But who decided on this exception? The president? The technocratic national or international public health bureaucracy? a handful of specialized experts and their billionaire backers from around the world. For most people, the answer remains rather hazy. A second, more straightforward justification for maintaining a state of exception soon followed. In the wake of the riot at the Capitol building on January 6, 2021, new executive units were deployed with wide latitude to define and police domestic extremists. State-directed censorship of communications became the prevailing norm Investigative committees with extraordinary powers were established, and the right of sitting opposition political figures to participate in electoral contests even began to be challenged. A bit over a year and a half later, the President of the United States had, while drenched in blood-red lighting and symbolically flanked by uniformed military personnel, hammered his fists on a podium and delivered a speech claiming that the state was under assault by his political opposition, whom he declared represented an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. His government, he averred, 
was engaged in in a battle for the soul of this nation with this faction, who didn't recognize the will of the people, and who posed a clear and present danger to our democracy, it would, he intoned, be to do ourselves no favor to pretend otherwise. One political party had, in the eyes of the ruling regime, apparently been confirmed as no mere parliamentary debating partner, but as a mortal threat to the continued existence of the state. For Schmidt, Right, so disputes are going to just remain a matter of debate and discussion and argument, all right? When disputes reach a level of intensity that uh, groups' very existence is at stake, then you're in a state of exception. You know, the ordinary rules no longer apply. Such a sharp existential distinction by the regime between its friends and its enemies would be not only predictable but inevitable and, in fact, essential to its interests. Friends and Enemies. Schmidt published his most well-known and influential work. Right, so it's one of the most basic questions when you encounter a stranger, when you're in an unfamiliar situation, right, when the world turns turbulent, right, are you surrounded by friends or are you surrounded by enemies? The concept of the political in 1927, revising it for republication in 1932. From its opening line, the concept of the state presupposes the concept of the political, Schmidt seeks to define what the political, and therefore the business of the political state, actually is. His answer is straightforward. The political is no less and no more than distinguishing between one's friends and one's enemies. For Schmidt, the essence of politics is not parliamentary debate, or building consensus, or setting tax policy, or even determining who gets to be in charge of running things. Right, so your enemy is he who threatens your very existence. Instead, the political is the most intense and extreme antagonism. It is the ever-present possibility of combat that comes into existence whenever one collectivity of people confronts a similar collectivity. Such a divide between groups may begin over religious, moral, cultural, economic, or even completely trivial differences, and continue to always be dressed up in those terms. But all such non-political differences are pushed aside at the precise moment that they become strong enough to group human beings effectively according to friend and enemy, and are thereby subsumed into the political. This moment necessarily arrives if either side finds that it must judge whether the adversary intends to negate his opponent's way of life, and therefore must be repulsed or fought in order to preserve one's own form of existence. And uh, chat says freedom of association ended with civil rights laws in 1964, and I think it ended, it certainly was restricted. You increase rights in one area, but you have to do it at the price of reducing rights in another area. Then the enemy represents the other, the stranger, and it is sufficient for his nature that he is in an especially intense way, existentially something different and alien, so that in the extreme case, conflicts with him are possible. Right, so the more tense your situation, all right, the more you feel that you're under attack, under threat, your very survival is at stake, right, the more suspicious you're going to feel towards strangers, right? Being at ease with strangers you know, requires a genuine feeling of well-being on your own part. But when the pressure increases, when the stress builds, when your own existence is at stake, most people turn against strangers and Jews uh, pretty much everywhere they go in the world, they are a stranger, Friend and enemy must therefore be understood in their concrete and existential sense, not as metaphors or symbols, 
for they receive their real meaning precisely because they refer to the real possibility of physical killing. War follows from enmity. War is the existential negation of the enemy if this extremity is not a real possibility. Then a distinction between friend and enemy does not yet exist, and so neither does the political. For Schmidt, the concept of the state presupposes the concept of the political because the state as an organized political entity decides for itself the friend-enemy distinction. If some other entity is the one that decides this distinction, the state is no longer the decisive political entity, for if it is no longer the one that decides, then it is no longer sovereign. And given that the obligation of the state is to protect its group from all threats, external and internal, and because this group, by Schmidt's very definition of the political, must be a homogeneously unified collective then, as long as the state is a political entity, this requirement for internal peace compels it in critical situations to decide upon the domestic enemy, which is why every state provides, therefore, some kind of formula for the declaration of an internal enemy. And no amount of moralistic hesitancy or liberal obfuscations about a politically neutral state can long delay the need to make this decision, Schmidt says, because everywhere in political history, in foreign as well as domestic politics, the incapacity or the unwillingness to make this distinction is a symptom of the political end. Right. So when your life isn't at stake, right, when your group isn't, you know, fighting for its survival, when you're not under threat, then you can afford to make all sorts of other distinctions aside from the friend-enemy distinction. You can distinguish between the morally righteous, you know, the morally wicked. You can distinguish between the aesthetic and the unesthetic. You can have all sorts of ways of dividing people up. But when your existence is at stake, all right, the primary distinction becomes the friend-enemy distinction. For if a people no longer possess the energy or the will to maintain itself in the sphere of politics, the latter will not thereby vanish from the world. Only a weak people will disappear. Right. So does uh, Israel have a right to exist? Do Jews have a right to exist? Do you know, any group have a right to exist? Does any nation state ha have a right to exist? Uh, no, unless you want to take a leap of faith. All right. Your, your existence depends upon your, your willingness to defend what you have. Right? If you're not willing to defend what you have, to take up arms if necessary, to do you know, whatever is necessary to survive, then you're not going to be around very long in this world. For the state and the statesman, the sole remaining question then is always whether such a friend and enemy grouping is really at hand, regardless of which human motives have brought it about. And political thought and political instinct prove themselves theoretically and practically in the ability to distinguish friend and enemy. And something in the chat, I don't think they have an Eruv in Australia. Yes, they have Eruvim in Australia, which uh, makes it easier to carry on the, on the Sabbath and to sustain a Jewish community. So there, there are Eruvim in Sydney, in Melbourne, maybe other places in Australia and New Zealand. So quite the thriving little Jewish communities in, in Melbourne and Sydney with mikvahs and uh, something like six Jewish day schools in Sydney alone. Thus, the highest political reality is those moments in which the enemy is in concrete clarity, recognized as the enemy. If portions of the American right have today turned to Schmidt as a guide, it may be because they now have plenty of reason to believe the purported procedural neutrality of the liberal technocratic state 
is nothing but the thinnest of veils covering an existential antagonism that in truth the crucial political distinction has now already been made for them they have been identified in concrete clarity as the enemies of the state. Now, I, I think most intellectuals who have taken up uh, Carl Schmitt over the past 40 years are on the left rather than the right. It happens that Schmitt... So what unites devotees of Carl Schmitt is generally a skepticism about liberalism and the technocratic state. In fact, voiced particular unease about how he expected liberalism would tend to define its enemies. By insisting on having transcended the political through its commitment to pluralism and enlightened universal values, and therefore incapable of ever acknowledging the possibility of sinking to the level of identifying a human enemy, liberalism would, he predicted, confiscate the word humanity, thus denying the enemy the quality of being human. In such a case, for the liberal, any resulting war is then considered to constitute the absolute last war of humanity. And ultimately, such a war is necessarily unusually intense and inhuman, because, by transcending the limits of the political framework, it simultaneously degrades the enemy into moral and other categories, and is forced to make him a monster that must not only be defeated, but also utterly annihilated. Okay, so we've got Channel 7 in Los Angeles on the story of these shootings here in uh, Pico Robertson. In the Jewish community in the Pico Robertson area, after two shootings in two days, both victims targeted while leaving nearby synagogues. Now, our decision reporter Josh Haskell is live in Pico Robertson, where we're now getting new details from police on a possible connection between these two shootings. Josh? And David, shootings in this neighborhood are very rare. Anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is not. Now, the LAPD right now is saying that these shootings, they're not sure whether these are hate crimes, but those who live here can't see them being anything else. Los Angeles's Jewish community is on edge after two men were shot in separate incidents after they left morning prayers at two Pico Robertson synagogues. Detectives believe the shootings may have involved the same suspect, but have no indication of a hate crime at this time. On the Sabbath, on Shabbat, we don't drive. We walk to synagogue. And this is why I live in this neighborhood, because all the synagogues are so close. And this is what attracts us to come here. So... I really hope that they find them. Everybody should be able to go to and from a place of worship, um, whether, whether that be a house or whether that be an actual synagogue or a, or a mosque or a church. Um, people have the right to pray and pray safely. The first incident happened Wednesday morning near the intersection of Shenandoah and Cassio Streets. A Jewish man in his 40s wearing a yarmulke was walking to his car when someone shot him and then drove away. The other incident happening only one block away at the intersection of Pickford and South Bedford. A Jewish man in his 70s was shot at from a suspect inside a vehicle. Both victims are expected to survive. It's definitely scary, just raises more awareness and it, you know, it hits home a lot, especially when you know them and you know the community. So it's home. Those who live in the neighborhood where the shooting took place are convinced these shootings were motivated by hatred of the Jewish people. There's no way that this is a coincidence. And in a very Jewish neighborhood, both men um, leaving synagogues, possibly with a kippah on their head. I mean, you do the math, I think it's pretty, pretty clear. Yeah. They didn't stop them to get their wallet. There was no struggle. The, the guy just came out of the bushes, shot my friend and ran away. What other reasoning could you have?
And Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass calling these attacks on members of our Jewish community unacceptable. Again, detectives now... So this neighborhood, just south of this neighborhood, you had some innovative police tactics dealing with uh, gangs, such as the Playboy Gangster Crip Gang. So this gang operates just about uh, three blocks, four blocks south of where these shootings occurred. And much more attacks to the gang's history. Yeah. All right. Welcome to Cali's Most Dangerous. Let's get into it. My friend, she was killed. She was 14. She got her head blew off. They don't care about no girl. A girl life is meaningless, just like a man's life. On February 28th, 1985, Erica Johnson, Glenn Martell, and Derek Bond were chilling in a parked car in West Los Angeles, California at around 9 p.m. At first, everything was good. Martell and Glenn, they invited Erica into the car to smoke and chill. But everything quickly went left. When Martell reaches into his pan pockets, grabs his pistol, and fires four shots to Erica's face before the two men exit the car and run away from the murder scene. It was alleged that Martell and Bond set up Erica because she had been subpoenaed earlier that day as a witness in an assault case against an alleged leader of the Playboy Gangsta Crips. The two men were caught and arrested that night, and the trial began in the summer of 1986. The testimony during a six-week trial showed that the pair were already members of a lesser-known gang. They killed Erica in an effort to gain acceptance into the tougher Playboy Gangster Crips. Here's the thing. They weren't telling the cops nothing. There wasn't no snitching with the Playboy Gangster Crips, but the pigs already had what they needed. Key evidence in the trial was a police tape recording made secretly of Martel and Bond discussing the killing while seated in the police car after the arrest. During the trial, it was said that the men showed no remorse for the killings, often smiled and even were laughing a few times. One of the witnesses said, I've been to this trial a few times and I've noticed the defendants as they come in and they take it as if it's a joke. It's to me, it's very hard to accept. I can't understand the look on their faces. I can't understand how someone would take another man's life. Also, the DA who prosecuted the two men said later, although he serves in the office's hardcore gang unit, he had never seen a case where they were so casual about killing somebody. Okay, so just south of uh, Beverly Hills, about a mile south, about uh, four blocks south of these shootings, right, you have La Cienega Heights, right? It used to be known as Corning Cadillac when it was dominated by the Playboy Gangster Crips. That video is about them. So Louis Keene, the Jewish journalist, I read his long Twitter thread on these two shootings of male Orthodox Jews in the last two days. Higo Robinson, he wrote a couple of years ago, when I signed a lease on an apartment on Corning in 2018, I couldn't believe my luck. The location couldn't be beaten 15 minutes from the beach, 20 minutes from downtown, a stone's throw from Beverly Hills, yet I could afford it on a writer's salary. Moreover, at a moment when I felt ambivalent about Orthodox Judaism, I could observe as I pleased. Most of the block's residents were of Mexican descent, as was my new roommate, stranger had posted on Craigslist. But the neighborhood was adjacent to the heavily Orthodox Pico Robinson area where I grew up, and I could walk to my parents for Shabbat dinner. But I did not then understand was that the neighborhood, the very block, had changed a lot over the past 60 years. My good fortune had come at the tail end of a decades-long process of race-based discrimination, the Jewish revival of La Cienega Heights, as the neighborhood has been known since 2003. It's not quite happened at the expense of black life, but the trajectory of these 18 square blocks underscores the subtle ways in which American Jews often benefit from 
structural anti-black racism. So La Cienega Heights was overwhelmingly like 95%, 99% white and Jewish through the 1950s. Then in 1967 came the first seeds of integration. So that was the year the original cohort of black students from South Los Angeles was bused to Alexander Hamilton High School, a mile from Corning Street. By 1972, half of the school students were black. By 1980, 60% of La Cienega Heights residents were black. Many of the area's white residents, including almost all its Jewish population, moved out. So, wow, we've got uh, helicopters overhead right now. La Cienega Heights was not spared the introduction of rock cocaine into black communities or the emergence of street gangs through the 1980s. Wrought iron window bars and barbed wire went up around the neighborhood as a homegrown gang. The Playboy Gangster Crip sold crack on Corning Street, controlled the surrounding blocks. So this is about four blocks, three blocks south of these shootings. The 1987 gang injunction developed to stop that gang the first of its kind in the country. It was the first of a series, serious crackdowns on crime in the neighborhood. What followed over the next 30 years was a gradual outflow of the neighborhood's black residents and an influx of Latino immigrants who took their place. So La Cienega Heights, the area bound by Robertson and La Cienega Boulevards between Sawyer and Cadillac, right, a place with no heights to speak of, is now roughly 20% black, 50% Latino. La Cienega Heights has sprouted a Colel institution that supports full-time Torah scholars, and in her 2015 book, Police, Power, and the Production of Racial Boundaries, you get a historical ethnography of La Cienega Heights. So the neighborhood was 80% Jewish in the 1950s, and then within 15 years, it became about 80% black. So as these Jews found professional success, they sent their children to Hamilton High School, which was once one of the top public high schools in the city. Then you got racial integration and uh, the destruction of Hamilton High School. It's one thing not to care. It's another to laugh about it, he said. They literally laughed in the face of the probation officer. They laughed during the course of the trial, and Martel was laughing in the court, said the officer. In the end, though, both Martel and Bond were sentenced to a maximum of 25 years to life in prison. Look. Y'all got to make sure y'all pay attention to these details of the story, man. Keep all this stuff in mind because it plays a big part in the current state of the Playboy Gangsta Crips. This brings us to the danger rating of the Playboy Gangsta Crips. The Playboy Gangsta Crips receive a danger rating of an 8.8 .8 out of 10 based off of the gang's long history of violence, extortion, and willingness to engage with anyone who wants it with them. What Big Sad say? Look, my mama understand. I chose this life from a gangbang. Any disrespect, I'm leaving niggas on front page. Bars, nigga. <laughs> Look, I'm going to be referencing a lot of big, sad bars today. Okay, I got to disavow that, that language. All right, uh, so there's a whole book written on this neighborhood by a left-wing professor. 2015, it came out. Police Power and the Production of Racial Boundaries in La Cienega Heights. So the description on Amazon says this book explores the history of the area to explain how Cadillac Corning became viewed by outsiders as a violent neighborhood and how the city's first gang injunction, a restraining order aimed at alleged gang members, solidified this negative image. So this neighborhood became a test site for repressive practices that spread to the rest of the city. So the author thanks the Soros Justice Fellowships for her, their continued belief, concern, and support of her work. During the first part of her research from the summer of 2007 to the summer of 2010, she lived in the 18th square block Cadillac Corning 
neighborhood. And let's say hello to our friend Duvid. Duvid, how's how's it going, man? I broke a shim. So we've uh, had some uh, shootings of Orthodox Jewish men returning home from synagogue here in Pico Robertson. So two shootings in the past two days. Yeah, God forbid. I was re- I was uh, reading about that. I checked your channel and uh, you're talking about it. But I guess uh, you started earlier tonight. Yeah, so we got helicopters circling overhead and uh, big, big police presence, traffic life disrupted. We got, of course, the Sabbath starting in about uh, 20, 22 hours. What's, uh, what's going on with you, man? It's been a while since I've spoken to you. Yeah, thank God. Um, you know, just normal. Uh, I'm still uh, doing the weekly tour of my library. So uh, thank God I got 20 episodes. So next week should finish up uh, all of uh, all of my library, which more been like sections and uh, your whole uh, series of books. Okay, so perhaps to Judas for the donation. Random, like I don't think we spoke for like the last month you were in Australia. So I thought it was of random note that uh, it was before you met up with the, uh, oh man, your, your, the name is uh, slipping me now. The the man from Australia who uh, popped on my stream when you were on my channel. Oh, oh, um, Jim Bowden. Yeah, Jim, ba- Jim Bowden. So he, we had an interesting conversation. And then I saw that he, uh, got set up with a debate uh, with Adam Green on the channel of Crucible, which I mentioned to you numerous uh, times if you ever uh, checked it in. And then the the Crucible kicked him mid-debate. He was like, Jim, you're boring. You're bounced. I'm not sure if you saw or covered <laughs> no, that. No, that was I didn't like know that. <laughs> so have you been uh, participating in any more uh, like controversial group streams aside from that one? No, not really at all. I I, I made a comment on uh, this guy Sula Adar uh, Weintraub, who I actually think is in Aus, uh, Los Angeles. I, I messaged you and him about each other and mentioned um, if it was interesting for you to connect. So I spoke to him about counter-Semitism uh, because he made a video about Adam Green, and uh, Adam Green's like really the only one. I keep in regular contact with, I, I message him and uh, speak to him occasionally. And uh, yeah, I told him to use the term counter Semite cause he wanted to speak to uh, you know, anti-Semites. And I, so I said, if you just call them anti-Semites, they're less likely to speak to you. And so he invited me on his channel and we spoke about uh, counter Semite as opposed to anti-Semitism. And I guess he's kind of a leftist, israeli american uh idf veteran that uh has dialogue with uh mostly palestinians that was moving into trying to speak to uh anti-semites so that was really my only appearance uh, ralph from house of comments had like uh he's been out for like a year and had uh, one show that i popped on to uh but uh besides for that just week in review and uh, my other streaming which is relatively drama free mostly uh you know intellectual probably similar for your content just took a less controversial less impactful smaller audience turn 
So you did a video with, with Sula speaking with a Jew who agrees with anti-Semites. I, I don't think that's an accurate description of you. I mean, you're, you're willing to extend your empathy, but uh, I, is that an accurate description of you? No, he said he wanted more controversial terminology, and it might be his or his audience take on it. Because I, I made a comment that uh, you to call anti-Semitism counter-Semitism. So, you know, whatever. I, like he wanted to use that title as like as he call whatever he want. Um, but it, it's probably indicative of how um, Jews feel about me. God forbid, and probably why I stopped doing it. It's kind of like a lose-lose battle, especially like you see like the shooting in uh, today where, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, I never got any thanks for doing it, even though relatively from my own perspective, I was, uh, you're trying to stand up for the Jewish people. And my point was more, what was kind of your original point to me was that there's a lot of legitimate, uh, claims of problems of group conflict, uh, you with Jews, and that's why I've made the distinction of counter-Semitism and that there is legitimate conflicts of interest between various groups. Um, you know, specifically, this guy was probably interested in speaking to your know, white European uh, alt-righter types and uh, you know, to just legitimize, not to say um, puts you in the camp of anti-Semitism to say, well, of course, Jews support immigration and multiculturalism. And of course, that may not be in the best interest of the, the majority of whites in America. And it's a legitimate uh, group conflict of uh, interest. And, you know, so just making that concession already, uh, you know, God forbid, you know, like, you know, God forbid, Duvid's an anti-Semite. So, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, my perspective is not popular among Jews, even legitimizing to say uh, that, you know, like E. Michael Jones or Kevin McDonald that I'll legitimize that anti-Semitism is a reaction to Jewish behavior and largely the cause of anti-Semitism is bad Jewish behavior, which are points that I'm willing to concede and, uh, you know, God forbid, seem to be extremely unpopular among Jews, as you could see of uh, you know, even just the way this man titled uh, uh, your program. Yeah, I mean, how I would phrase it is that how Jews behave will have some effect, right? How any group behaves will have some effect on how outsiders perceive it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's not necessarily the, the majority shaper of, of how they're perceived. So, for example, Christianity and Islam both got their start, you know, from inside of Judaism or affected by Judaism. So they have a strong incentive to legitimate the, the, their own groups to, you know, put down Judaism. So there, there are a lot of factors, but definitely how, how an individual behaves, how a group behaves is going to have a, a significant effect on, on how people perceive it. And then Jews are, you know, disproportionately active in, you know, many parts of life, such as uh, politics, uh, culture, and sometimes different groups have different interests. And so they're, they're clashing group interests, not just between Jews and non-Jews, but often between blacks and whites, gays and straights, Latinos and Asians, right? Uh, human being tends to have infinite desires, but we live in a finite world. And so different groups often have different interests, different strengths, different weaknesses. And when we 
you know, live in proximity to each other, they're often, you know, clashing interests. And these these clashing interests are not necessarily overwhelmingly just out of ignorance. Sometimes the more we get to know some other group, the more disturbing we find it. So, for for example, for, for many Orthodox Jews and uh, liberal Jews, Reformed Jews, secular Jews, right, the more they get to know each other, often, you know, the more disturbed they are by the other. So sometimes getting to know someone else will reduce tension and conflict, but uh, just as frequently it will increase tension and conflict. Anything you want to add to any of that, David? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this so many times. So just then from the Jewish perspective, um, you're like, no, I'm pro-Jewish. I just legitimize that there is a reasonable conflict of interest and just for dialogue to admit that there's a conflict of uh, interest and that there is such a thing as Jewish interest and group interest. And there might be other groups, uh, you know, in this case, specifically you know, white Americans or Europeans that have interests that uh, in some ways are in opposition. And therefore you could have a meaningful comp uh, conversation about uh, immigration. And you know, my hope was to diminish or minimize uh, um, anti-Semitism by trying to explain why Jews support immigration or saying like, uh, you know, kind of like the Lubavitch Rebbe, you talk about issues, not people. So uh, you'll say, okay, we could agree to disagree about immigration. Um, but uh, you know, largely for most, a lot of Jews, it's a step too far. And then my other point was, uh, it doesn't really benefit to label someone an anti-Semite. So it seems that a lot of Jews in the sphere that do this, they speak to a person and then they like make a determination whether they think they're an anti-Semite or not. Like Charles Moskowitz, I, he switched times and we, we stopped streaming. Uh, um, so he stopped inviting me, but it wasn't really going anywhere. But he was also of uh, the same demeanor where, where he likes to speak to somebody and then he makes his expert determination whether he thinks the guy's an anti-Semite or not. And uh, almost always he does. I mean, he has the people he'll defend. He'll be like, oh, Pat Buchanan's definitely not anti-Semite. Or he used to defend uh, E. Michael Jones, but now he feels E. Michael Jones has you know, went beyond the pale, and now he's happy to call E. Michael Jones uh, anti-Semite. And I said, well, what difference does it make whether he calls him that or not? And how does it promote uh, dialogue as opposed to having a meaningful conversation? And, and um, you know, even Adam Green's really the only one I've spoken to. Uh, I, I was on his show actually in December. He invited me on to review this Jewish comedian, former Orthodox Jew. Um, Ari, Shaf Ari Shafir. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like Ari Shafir's negative statements about Jews were relatively a lot worse than Adam Green's. I mean, they're, they're of a different nature, but like, oh, obviously he's a Jew. And uh, it's of a different uh, um, nature, but uh, you know, just the fact that I'm friendly with Adam Green is enough to draw the ire of a lot of Jews because, uh, you know, in gen I mean, generally I, I dislike the terminology of anti-Semitism in general. I don't throw the term around. I don't think it's helpful. Um, I think we're in agreement about that, but I, you know, I've tried to somewhat defend Adam Green and, uh, you know, that's led to a lot of, of uh, pushback and, you know, whatever I'm on the show once or twice a year. Um, and then, 
you know, my point that I made to him, well, well, Adam Green says he's not an anti-Semite. If he was an anti-Semite, uh, why wouldn't he admit it? And I had these conversations with Charles Moskowitz, uh, you know, like Jim Rizzoli, who uh, you know, was substantially more counter-Semitic than most people. But even him, um, you know, I even called him on his phone. He gave me his home number. I called him. We talked. And uh, I mean, he was adamant. He's not anti-Semitic. He just you know, is against what Jews in his theory are doing to society and uh, Jewish behavior. And, and he kind of yelled at me for like half an hour, was like warning me that, uh, you, you know, like he wanted to help me uh, because he felt that Jews were doing such horrible things to society. And if I would just listen to him, then, then uh, you know, maybe I could prevent the backlash that we're going uh, to face. But, uh, you know, I thought it was notably interesting that he adamantly denied being uh, anti-Semitic and then to put there, well, well, obviously he's anti-Semitic. So what benefit is it to us to uh, to label that or try to convince people? And I've argued so many times in the past that, uh, you know, God forbid, that uh, it's somewhat of our own making by us insisting that people who don't, who, who are adamant that they're not anti-Semitic are anti-Semitic, that it makes them anti-Semitic. And, uh, you know, I've been following the Cozy TV and the Yay is right and the Dalton Clodfetter. And I think that's probably the best example where you know, we basically convinced Kanye West that he was anti-Semitic when he was adamant he wasn't. Uh, and you know, especially Kanye West that uh, you know, relatively was pretty good with the Jews just a few months ago. And now like the yay is right and you have uh, you know, uh, Dalton Clodfetter, if you've been following that going around college campuses, with the yay is right, and they have these huge protests um, by Jews, and they adamantly reject that they're anti-Semitic. And uh, you know, so what benefit is it to uh, you know label them and th them as? I mean, I, I could obviously see the reason why Jews do that and say like, well, clearly what you're saying is a negative portrayal about Jews. Maybe it's false um, in these various things. So you're anti-Semitic. We're going to label you like that. Um, but I think it. Uh, you know, God forbid that uh, the increase in anti-Semitism is of our own making. I was in the chat on Sula just to finish off earlier today, uh, where they were talking to a semi-popular writer, uh, like an American, young American who went to serve in the IDF, and uh, he was writing for Israeli blogs fighting anti-Semitism. And it's like, well, is there really twice as many anti-Semites in America as there was five years ago? like according to all these new surveys, or did we just label twice the amount of people uh, anti-Semites? And uh, if we make these definitions, you're really so unreasonable that uh, so many, God willing, that God forbid that no uh, reasonable-minded uh, non-Jew is uh, going to accept this, then uh, you know, then basically everybody's an anti-Semite. So I'm um, obviously, you follow this quite a bit, and I don't know if you agree with me. It's uh, you know, say, clearly the Jewish organizations are saying that anti-Semitism has like doubled in the last five years, and and I could see that that might be true in some aspects, but you know, maybe it's just that we label twice as many people anti-Semites, and uh, you know, through our own behavior, have uh, caused twice as many people to uh, disapprove of our behavior. Also, Israel has a new government, so I, I notice on the streets much more 
tension about Jews. I had this homeless man just screaming at me about how we control all, all the gold. But the, the new government of, of Israel is not a particularly liberal one. And so it it is receiving a ton of criticism. Like Israel is just getting relentlessly criticized. And I'm not arguing that it's unfair or arguing that it's fair. I'm just noting the reality. So there's a tremendous amount of criticism of the Jewish state right now. And this will inevitably have real-life repercussions uh, for Jews. So I notice when I walk down the street wearing a yarmulke, people are five, ten times more likely to approach me and engage with me as a Jew when Israel's at war. And so Israel may not be at war right now, but there's certainly dramatically more tension between the Jewish state and the rest of the world. Any any thoughts on the connection between changes in the Israeli government, more tension between the Jewish state and the rest of the world, and its repercussions on Jews just walking down the street wherever they are in the world? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, like, I was in University of Michigan, and, uh, you know, the BDS passed, and, uh, you know, I, I was friendly and met a lot of Palestinians and tried to listen to them, hear them out, and... Uh, um, you know, God forbid what's happening in Israel is a difficult situation. Um, and you within Jewish circles, like the, the pushing of the, the new, uh, yeah, I forget the acronym or the IHR definition of, uh, anti-Semitism to include anti-Zionism. Uh, but it's, it's definitely a factor and, and probably a, a major factor in, the militancy fighting back approach of American Jews as historically American Jews probably would not have thought it was a wise strategy to fight anti-Semitism and actively uh, you, you take such a proactive approach uh, but because uh, you know, we have Israel and Israel strong and that's the approach that uh, Israel is taking um, and you know, even like I used to talk with this, like Charles Moskowitz, and when there be terrorist actions in Israel, that they're not referred to as anti-Semitic because it's part of a war. So if someone's killed, like, you know, even, you know, pretty regularly, like, you know, this week, even like young children were killed in terrorism in Israel. And Charles Moskowitz was always adamant that like, you know, they're being killed just because they're Jews and it's anti-Semitism. And um, even in Israel, they don't use that terminology and say like, no, I mean, it's part of a war and uh, there's civilian casualties of a war that's terrorism, but it's not anti-Semitism. And then the conflation uh, to America, um, you know, there's a lot of complications and, uh, you know, politics and uh, you know, obviously the one of the big factors in increasing anti-Semitism is you know, the influence of uh, Jews on American society. And one of the most notable is the push for support of the U.S. of Israel. And as there's more Arabs and more multiculturalism, more Palestinians in America, people have the face of the other because you kind of have to pick a side, either Jews or Palestinians. Um, and just quickly, because the uh, Laponius in the chat is mentioning, uh, yeah, I did for like 10 weeks mob talk with uh, John Wolf, your you know, that I found from uh, your ch your chat that came to my show, and we kind of ran out of steam. And these guys are really big into this guy Gunnar Lindblom, who I, I'm not too familiar with him, but he's from Detroit, like a minor 
mobster who spent time in prison and supposedly has a Hollywood series coming out of his book. And it turns out there's a guy in the mob talk genre who I went to high school with Scott Bernstein, who has like a original gangsters podcast. And he went to college and got a degree in like mobology and does a lot of research and uh, had some beef with uh, Gunnar Lindblom. I'm not sure even if I could or the benefit, uh, but you know, these guys are all hyped. They want you to have uh, Gunnar Lindblom um, on his, on your show to talk about his book that, uh, you know, supposedly coming a Hollywood movie. Okay. Um, so you reduced or quit using marijuana about a year or so ago. How's that going? Pretty good. You know, like, uh, I'm basically off of it. You know, there, you know, I could see, um, I'm more productive. Like I read, I study, um, I started doing pushups like today. Thank God I did a hundred pushups. Uh, yesterday was the first time I did a hundred pushups since I started working out like, uh, six months ago. Um, I, I think uh, like a decade ago, I was able to do maybe 20 years ago. I did like a hundred pushups, uh, you know, in sets over a day, but the first time in a long time, um, but yeah, more productive. I read, I, you know, I started doing like push-ups and uh, exercise and, you know, just cleaning, uh, you're listing more things on eBay. So uh, you're definitely better that I, that I was off of it. I'm still probably largely depressed and uh, you know, understanding why I did it for so long, but uh, you're know, glad I kicked it. And you know, definitely thanks to Luke for always encouraging me in uh, that direction. Yeah, definitely encourage that for anyone, though understanding that there are exceptional cases. So I'm not going to make any you know, blanket statements. I'm sure some individuals are better off with the, you know, if they've got you know terminal cancer or something or certain individuals, it's, you know, I'm sure marijuana helps them. But for many other people, it has a, a deleterious effect on, on their life. And what about getting back to synagogue? Have you stepped back into shul? No, I mean, and I'm kind of paranoid, like about like you know, God forbid, like the rising anti-Semitism that that uh, you know, I feel excluded. Like I don't feel like an insider, and like as the Jewish community becomes more suspicious of outsiders, it uh, you know it feels like I don't really want to bear that suspicion, and uh, you know even just here like. Uh, you're just streaming. Like, you like, I talked to Adam Green once in the last year. I hardly talked to anybody on the internet, just, uh, um, but, uh, you know, even like high tea, uh, you know, people are like, you know, like Duvid's not even Jewish and, uh, uh large amounts of suspicion. And so, you know, I think with the increased security measures, it kind of scares me out of, uh, um, you, you're wanting to go through, uh, you know, the suspicion to be a part of, uh, the Jewish community. I started coaching chess again. I feel good about that. I go Friday afternoons to the Detroit Institute of Art and African Americans. So that's, I started doing that regular activity. Um, and you'll feel good about that. It's in public and it's actually been packed. I've been uh, filling, uh, you know, overfilling the room, like 50 kids, uh, new kids every week. Um, I thought of going to synagogue a few times, but, uh, you know, like, you know, God forbid, I'm not sure if you feel like that as a convert or, or you're comfortable enough within your Jewish community that, uh, but uh, you're just the huge level of suspicion of outsiders 
and it's feel like, oh man, like the increasing anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, do I really want to go through uh, the high levels of suspicion to uh, go to synagogue? Well, for, for me, I have various commitments. I mean, nothing prestigious, uh, nothing you know, particularly, you know, upfront and, you know, vitally important, but I have various volunteer commitments, which keeps me pretty deeply engaged with the Jewish community. So I have found, you know, volunteering in, in a very modest, <laughs> low-key, unprestigious, you know, elementary way, but just taking on some commitments to help out in the community is really help plug me in because I think I'm a lot like you in that my natural trajectory is towards isolation, which is not good for me. And so I have to work hard to overcome my own inertia and tendencies towards isolation and, you know, self-doubt and self-loathing. So if I just, you know, follow my inclinations, you know, I isolate, I self-doubt and I self-loathe. So I have to, you know, actively be doing things with other people and taking on commitments with, with other people to keep myself out of that negative downward spiral. Anything you want to add on this topic? Yeah, I agree. I think I could, I'm pretty, like, I'm, I feel relatively confident in my position in the Jewish community. I'm not you know, saying that, uh, you know, I'm still on the email list of my local, you know, young Israel. And, you know, I can't imagine that they would, uh, you know, like I'd knock on the door if, you know, I don't know what, I, mean, I used to know the combination lock outside, but, you know, presumably they change it uh, every so often. And, but you know, I'm pretty sure they would probably, you know, let me in and the majority of people would be relatively friendly of me, but it's more paranoia. Um, volunteering coaching chess makes me feel good in a part of things. It's unclear exactly how I would volunteer in the Jewish community. And I'm not sure if, you know, if you feel it's it's in doing menial tasks. So if I was trying to do something volunteering, um, I would probably have to perform menial tasks. I'm not sure how meaningful uh, I would feel about that or, you know, through donations and even, uh, you know, so, so, okay, like I'm going to go to my local young Israel. Um, so there's really no excuse for me not to be a full paying member. So, I mean, they're the, the, the suspicion. So like the, the best way for me to, uh, you know, uh, avoid any suspicion would be to be a full paying member, uh, but it's expensive. I think it's like $1,300 a year or something. I mean, they might give me a discount and they'd probably, you know, they're the charter, they'd let me go there even though I didn't pay. And, you know, if I told them my situation, maybe they'd, uh, you know, let me off for like $650 a year. Uh, but, uh, you know, thinking like, is it really worth the money for me to pay like $1,300 a year to, uh, you know, go to a Minion on Sabbath to be like a full-fledged member? And I, I don't know if you pay full membership or if you go to the type Minion that uh, has full membership. And, uh, you know, if you kind of agree that, uh, you know, you could feel part of it by doing menial tasks or volunteering, uh, but you're really within the Jewish community you really feel part of it through extended family uh, connections uh, or, or we've talked at length in the past of doing for the community, but the most common thing to do for the community is pay and donate money. And I'm sure there in you know Hollywood, it's probably expensive. It's if it's a $1,300 for young Israel in uh, you know, Metro Detroit, uh, I don't know, it might be $5,000 for young Israel in Hollywood. Yeah. It's uh 
synagogue membership is around uh, $2,000 to $3,000 a year. So sometimes I've paid full membership, you know, other times I've, I've paid, you know, half uh, membership. So sometimes I've paid more than full membership. So it, it's, it's varied. But uh, yeah, the, the Jewish way of life is definitely not an easy or an inexpensive one. So where did, where, where, where did you get the strength to do all these streams on your library? It takes a lot of energy, a lot of strength to do live streams. So where did it come from? Um, you know, I, I was just getting out of it. I wasn't doing anything besides week in review. Um, my numbers on my channel were decreasing. I wasn't even hitting like the 4,000 watch hours of a year. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to do something. So one of the things I get asked most often are for book recommendations. So I just came up first with the idea to do books that changed my life. And I did a first stream on that. And it got decent viewership. So I thought, like, I'll do a weekly tour of my library where I'll just, uh, you'll go over and talk about the books on my shelf. And, uh, you know, so I got, I was getting, you know, over 100 views. Some of them even got, uh, uh, you know, a few of them got over 500 views. I got a handful of super chats, um, some activity in the chat. So I kept on doing it, you know, Wednesday for and, and I realized for streaming, like you, you got to do it regularly. So thank God, you know, Jennifer, we can review. We've been doing that over three years. So you're just keeping my imprint and uh, you always know, get uh, 10, you know, average, maybe 10, 15 viewers. And uh, you'd have a little bit of a community from doing it regularly. So I, I knew I had to do something. And uh, so that's what I came up with tour of my library. Um, but it's coming to an end. You know, thank God I have uh, enough books. And it was pretty meaningful for me to just, uh, you know, going through memory, memory row. I'm trying to forward some research. I, 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 like, I want to publish. I want to start writing. I'm actually going to try to write an essay this week. If uh, if it's interesting to you, I'll forward on what I call higher low birth. I use the expression, um, you know, referring to the status of birth and uh, one's parental upbringing. upbringing and the effect towards uh, different aspects of uh, life from uh, you know Judaic and other perspectives, but uh, I want to take a more proactive approach to life, and I'm an accomplished, uh, driven person. And uh, you know, I guess thank God for you. You uh, you started that accomplishment in writing and already published a uh, you know numerous books before you reached the age that that I, you know I'm turning 45. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to take a proactive approach. I want to uh, write a book. I want to uh, be a regular author. I bought duvid.com. You know, I invested some money into myself. Um, you know, I bought a, a year subscription of StreamYards. I bought uh, duvid.com and uh, put my blog on uh, you know, my own webpage. And uh, you know, so probably next week when I finish the tour of my library, I'm going to try to keep it going with a regular weekly stream because, uh, you, you know, if you don't, you got to be there. You got to come up with something. So uh, you know, hopefully I'll be able to come up with something. So you know, thank God it, it uh, kept me going for about three months to uh, you know, do the tour of my library. And, and what about getting out into the world in person, say, aside from Jewish things, but just getting more social or more out and about in the wider community? Nothing. So, you know, like, 
yeah, I'm working for my parents and you know, a little property management and my eBay business. It's going good enough. Like I just filed my taxes this week. Um, you know, so uh, it doesn't involve much socialization. Um, so about four months ago, they started chess back in Detroit and that's somewhat prestigious. I'm, I'm coaching, you know, mostly African-Americans in Detroit, but it's at the museum. My mother was the lawyer for the museum and I felt good about that. I feel like I'm doing something useful. Um, you know, I feel like I'm valued. You know, I go there, kids call me coach, you know, like African-American, uh, you know, like 10 year old Detroiters. I come in there and like, Hey coach, you know, coach Dave. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are excited because they like chess and I'm a pretty good chess coach and have uh, relatively pretty good credentials at uh, you know chess i'm a former junior uh, state champion in michigan um but i haven't came up with something else to do like i'm too old to uh really do something new i, I can't imagine um that i would uh um you know what what i would pick up and do uh you know employment wise i mean i could obviously apply for like full-time work i might be able to find employment uh, doing something but you know, thank God I'm self-sufficient with uh, my own part-time employment, and I go to uh, engineering conferences. I mean, ironic. I, I don't. It's probably not worth disclosing too much personal information. Um, no, don't, you know, don't, my, my, you know, don't damage your own well-being. But go ahead. Um, you know, my my brother converted to Christianity in uh, the last year. Wow. And, uh, he he. I mean, my my brother's. Uh, we're a little distant, but I mean, he's a good guy and. Um, he, you know, he suffered a divorce and he has a child and, uh, um, you know, he was feeling lonely and then he had a, a, a girlfriend who passed away and uh, he didn't talk to me about it. I, I was shocked. Like if, uh, you know, like I'm kind of distant from my brother, I, I wouldn't even know he got divorced if my mom hadn't told me he wouldn't have reached out. Um, but he converted to Christianity and, uh, you know, he was never into Judaism. Like, like, uh, I can't imagine he would have become like a bull Jew. He married He's got a half Jewish, uh, you know, daughter from a non-Jewish wife, um, but uh, you know, it was probably loneliness, and he fell into a community at a church and converted to Christianity. And I don't see myself doing something like that. You know, like my dad plays bridge, uh, so like I play chess, and uh, you know, I can't imagine though I'd pick up a new activity. So I'd probably be more likely to, uh, you know, either get reinvolved in Judaism, you know, it's just tough, like the downtown synagogue. Um, they also start kicking up the money. Like, you know, they, they went liberal, but now, you know, it's like 150 bucks a month. You know, like if, if I started trying to go back there, like, you know, like, and I don't know if it's worth it. And, and like, you know, definitely with their liberal politics or the community. Um, so, you know, it's tough. I, I would probably, you know, like you, um, you know, probably go all in on the Jewish community. I could probably also you know, go back into like Hinduism, the Hare Krishna. I think I have a pretty good, you know, reputation with the temple and the community. I'm still friends with like hundreds of people uh, from that community in Metro Detroit on Facebook. So I could probably go all in and you know, either Judaism or Hinduism. But, uh, you know, now that I'm not smoking marijuana, I've gotten really into scholarship. Uh, and I, I was actually talking to Adam Green about that, uh, and I said, I credit the rabbis completely in my yeshiva education. Like I spend 10 hours a day reading, um, you know, like I started writing and blogging. I'm trying to write a book. 
and I don't study too much Jewish topics, um, but it was definitely uh, you know, my yeshiva experience in Israel that gave me the discipline to read for 10 hours a day. So I think I'm more likely to become uh, reclusive, but uh, I, I also think I'm onto something. I feel like I have, like I've been studying for decades now and just doing like the tour of my library, like uh, 20 episodes, like I've read a lot of books. I know a lot about a lot of subjects. So, uh, you know, hopefully I'll be able to put something out there and, uh, you know, garner some sort of uh, audience, at least, uh, you know, maybe in the likes that you have, or, you know, you know thank God I found Jennifer and we've had uh, three years now of a you know, mildly successful uh, micro streaming week in review. What do you think your brother benefited? What did he get out of converting to Christianity? How would you, you know, understand the, the appeal for someone like him? Um, yeah, I spoke to him recently about it, and I think it was more emotional and community. Like, yeah. I'm unclear if he had some sort of, like, he really believed it. I, I think, you know, maybe, God forbid, uh, my brother's a good guy, I don't want to say anything bad about him, um, but, you know, he fell into a dark period, midlife crisis, uh, you know, divorce, and, uh, and then, you know, God forbid, the death of uh, you know, his girlfriend after divorce uh, through cancer, God forbid, uh, you know, I met her a good woman. And uh, so he just fell into community. He, uh, you know, started going to community to a church because uh, I guess it was a woman he was dating, went to the church and he liked the community and but it was a church so you know it wasn't really kind of like a uh you know non-sectarian group of group of friends it was a church and uh, the pastor and he liked them and they converted him to christianity and joined so uh you know it's kind of like synagogue like uh you know, presumably if you weren't jewish you would probably lose most of your jewish friends like you'd be like no i mean we like you luke but you have to be an orthodox jew uh, you know, like our our friendships would fall apart if you were no longer an Orthodox Jew. And so it was probably like that for my brother. He just needed to be part of something. And there was a congregation of Christians that were there for him at the time. And it was meaningful enough to him that he converted to Christianity because of it. Did he ever spend time in Orthodox Judaism? No, never. Not, not once. He never, uh, he never even asked me about it. You know, like after I went wow. to Israel, I spent a long time in Israel in New York and, and, uh, and I could see from his perspective, even my parents' perspective in Metro Detroit, that, uh, you know, you have to consider yourself like, uh, you know, crazy to become an Orthodox Jew. I mean, I went to Israel and then after I went to New York, but uh, there's only a few thousand Orthodox Jews in Metro Detroit. And, you know, they're in Oak Park, so to say, like, you know, the poorest of all the Jewish neighborhoods, you know, that's almost, uh, completely African-American, and uh, you, you, from some reasonable perspective, I, I could see that he never even seriously considered uh, um, Judaism. And then, and then maybe also like a logical, like, you know, he's a half Jew or, or maybe he saw my own failure in it to say, you know, look, my brother tried this and I don't see that worked out that good for him that he even, uh, you even seriously looked into it. Now, what do you think that this this Sabbath here in Pico Robertson, West West Los Angeles, uh, when it comes to Haredi Jews, do you think a hundred percent of them will show up like normal to synagogue? When it comes to modern Orthodox, what would you say ninety percent, eighty percent not Orthodox Jews? Do you think synagogue attendance will be down fifty percent, or 
What do you think will be the effect of the shooting of these two Orthodox Jewish men if they don't find the shooter in in the next 20 hours? What do you think the effect will be on synagogue attendance in West Los Angeles, Beverly Hills this Sabbath? Well, I mean, we've discussed this in the past and like, you know, I lived in Hasidic, uh, you know, Brooklyn for years. And I mean, generally Jews are high authority people, uh, Orthodox Jews and listen to the leadership. There might be some dissent. So if there's actually some sort of security risk and they put out notes like don't come to synagogue. Uh, but otherwise, I would assume most Jews that go to synagogue are going to go to synagogue. Like, uh, I don't, I can't imagine less than like 10% of Jews would not go to synagogue. Um, if, you know, if, if you go to Minion every morning, you're not going, you're not going to not go to Minion tomorrow morning because of the shooting. And I mean, God forbid, if you follow like, you know, the Holocaust and various things, I would guess that would probably be the case, even if, uh, it got a lot worse, even if like, even, to, uh, you know, your own synagogue, even if people were getting shot, like on a regular basis, I think to a certain extent, that's part of orthodoxy, like people are still going to uh, go. And if you've been playing both sides, um, but, uh, you know, most orthodox Jews, they're all in on Judaism. And even at this point, you know, if you live in the Jewish community, there's not really much you could do about rising anti-Semitism. Okay, like I went to public school, uh, you know, like I'm only a half Jew. Um you know, versus if you're an Orthodox Jew, that's all you know, you know, like, and with rising anti-Semitism, what are you going to do? You're going to pick up and now try to, like, uh, you know, blend in and assimilate among uh, non-Jews. So I think uh, it's unlikely that, uh, I mean, I mean, God forbid it creates a bad situation because it's, I mean, when we first started talking about this and anti-Semitism at that point was pretty much a non-thing like i mean some anti it was similar to what it was today but in terms of being scared as a jew or violence towards jews or or the, you know the level that uh you'll say it's at today um but you know i said that if america declines and mostly economic decline that as jews we're the most likely target and like i was telling you that when we first started talking when uh you know, we weren't really targets but uh, I, I think that's the unfortunate aspect that's a true fear of most Jews that uh, rising anti-Semitism or not, it's more related to the decline of America. And as America declines and bad things start happening, uh, us as Jews are relatively one of the bigger targets. Um, but I don't know if you agree with my assessment that uh, like if you go to Minion, like unless the rabbi and the police tell you not to go, like I think most people are going to keep on going. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've just got an open mind. So I'm getting... I lived in Borough Park when there were mm -hmm. riots. Yeah. Like uh you know, there I mean there were minor riots with the police. There were minor instances uh you know, know anti Semitism. Like even in Israel, I was there when the Sabara um you know, a suicide bombing happened that that killed tens of people. I think it was the Sabara one I was there when one of those major suicide bombings happened right there on uh you know, Ben Yehuda. It wasn't far from uh you know, where I was in Yeshiva. It was uh um but uh like Orthodox Jews, we go on, that's what we do. Like unless the rabbis send out a message uh that like don't go to synagogue or there's some police type thing like uh, active shooter, um you, you know, I think 
I don't think any level of danger. And I think, you know, God forbid, if you read your Holocaust history, and we've had this debate many times where, uh, you know, I think that's part of Orthodox strategy is that uh, we just keep doing the same thing and it's not going to deter us and saying, well, what else are we going to do? You'll say like, unless like there's a, someone's going to shoot me on the way to synagogue right now, like I'm going to go. Um, I, like, I, I don't say, I mean, what, what do you, what do you think would happen? Even if it, God forbid, uh, it gets worse. I mean, what do you think like Jews are all of a sudden going to like assimilate and become irreligious because, because of that? No, a lot of fewer people wear yarmulkes. Uh, people respond to incentives. So some, some, some Jews won't uh, take off their yarmulkes, but many will. Uh, there will be precautions taken. There will be less you know, visible participation in, in Jewish life if you have you know, a whole string of, of these shootings. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. So thanks for coming back on the show, Duvid. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, if I could just mention on the point like that, I mean, it could be that would be the opposite. It would be more visual participation and more communal um, you know, Judaism in the sense where if it's like Brooklyn where you have Shomrim and the response will not be, I mean, in L.A. it might be different. So like obviously Borough Park where you have so many thousands of Orthodox Jews, um, but you know, there's not really even a thought to have less visual participation in Judaism it would be some sort of alternative communal response, which might be the opposite of more, um, you'll kind of say, in-your-face Judaism, where you're going to have more Jews on the street, more more Jews, uh, um, you know, communal activity. And it's tough to know if, uh, you know, God forbid, things could uh, escalate here. But, uh, you know, pray for the best and, you know, nice talk and stay safe. Thanks. And, um, you know, appreciate talking and God bless. So pray for you and your community safety. Thank you. Thank you, David. So looking at reporter Lewis Keane, he's, he's got the, the best coverage overall on this story. It says no one was badly hurt in either shooting, despite both being shot at a close range. The man who was shot today went to davening prayers tonight. So normally on Sabbath in Pico Robinson, you've got 10,000 Orthodox Jews you know, walking to synagogue. So this Sabbath, wondering if there'll be 9,000, 8,000, 7,000. Uh, the LAPD says it'll have many officers stationed in the area on the Sabbath. So I will report back. All right, uh, just a few blocks south of this shooting, right? It is the subject of a 2015 ethnographic history of La Cienega Heights, police power and the production of racial boundaries in La Cienega Heights. Criminology professor Anya Munoz. So about 99% of criminologists seem to be on the left. So Cadillac Corning is a predominantly now working class black and Latino immigrant neighborhood. It sits on the edge of the West Los Angeles police jurisdiction which also includes some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in, in the country. So the author says, I was struck by how residents, prosecutors, business owners, and police spent entire meetings vehemently complaining about Cadillac Corning, as well as by how they collaborated on repressive strategies. Civilians and law enforcement often conflicted with one another on their assessment of proper tactics in this neighborhood. Residents were often more militaristic than the police. So 
Now, community group members were not representative of neighborhood residents. Their high levels of formal community involvement made them unique. It's this uniqueness and unrepresentativeness that interested me. Community groups plan to shape the neighborhood in specific ways. They reached out to leaders in local government, the LAPD, to try to control access to the neighborhood, resource distribution, the appearance of the area, and the behavior of residents. So Cadillac Corning consists primarily of two- and three-story apartments built in the 1960s. This is by far one of the best up-and-coming rappers coming from L.A. right now. If you ain't heard about this nigga yet, you definitely got to tap in. I ain't know that nigga or nothing, though. But anyways... This game doesn't play. They have headlines and multiple stories about them that's basically been with them. Okay, talking here about the Playboy Gangster Crips. So, this neighborhood consists primarily of two- and three-story apartment buildings built in the 1960s. Got the occasional single-family home built in the 1920s. Most apartments are surrounded by wrought iron fences, some with spikes pointing inward. They're installed in the 1970s and 80s after the neighborhood became racially integrated. The housing is dense with narrow alleyways between and behind apartment buildings. Parking along both sides of every street essentially creates one-lane roads through the neighborhood. According to the 2010 census, 86% of all occupied housing was renter-occupied units. 16% of residents were white, 18% were black, 60% were Hispanic. The median household income for the 2000 census was 28000 so a third of families lived below the poverty level. So crossing the street to a surrounding neighborhood is an abrupt change from dense city life to an almost suburban space of trim lawns, ample parking, quiet sidewalks, large Houses, which is where you have more of the Jewish community. 2010, 66% of residents in the census tract to the north were white, 10% were black, 9% Asian, 11% Hispanic. In the 2000 census, the median household income was 46,000, with only 9% of families below the poverty level. So the more north, north you go, the more owner occupied units, more whites and uh, higher incomes. The track to the immediate west, including Beverly Wood Estates, is 93% occupied housing ownership, 86% white, 1% black, 6% Asian, 4% Latino, average household income of 115000 according to the 2000 census, only 2% of families below poverty level. So in 1997, Cadillac Corning was a model for the SARA Model, Scanning, Analysis, Response, and Assessment. SARA model is a problem-solving police method which officers collaborate with neighborhood prosecutors, landlords, and community groups to fight crime, blight, and quality of life offenses. It's now widely used by police departments nationally, and it was developed in this neighborhood just south of the shootings. In 2003, blue sign went up at the intersection of Cadillac Avenue and La Cienega Boulevard. Signed both to the city seal of Los Angeles, the name Las Yenega Heights. So the neighborhood was renamed. They hoped the new name would rehabilitate the neighborhood's status. But the new veneer has not buried a reputation decades in the making. There are still whispers about Cadillac Corning at homeowners association meetings in the surrounding wealthier, whiter, and more Jewish neighborhoods. 30-something white man with dark rim glasses confided... To a fellow Beverlywood Homeowners Association member, I drive Cadillac every day. My wife is terrified. Yeah, it is kind of scary <laughs> driving on Cadillac. Young pantsuit-clad woman gasped in response. Oh, my God, I would be scared too. So the ideal of the single-family home was central to L.A.'s sprawling development. 
LA was the land where everybody could have a car, where everybody's backyard was assaulted by year-round sunshine. The first houses were built in the Cadillac Corning area in the 1920s. Through the 1930s and 40s, you had Spanish-style homes and duplexes characterized by tile roofs, courtyards, and large glass windows. Shopping center where Ross Dress for Less discount store and CVS drugstore now stand. It used to be a dairy farm in the 1950s. So Bill, a Jewish man who lives just south of Cadillac Corning, grew up in the area, graduated from Hamilton High School in 1966. He recalls, most of the time I was there is 90% white and about 80% Jewish. Then when the neighborhood became racially integrated, property management companies began accepting Section 8 renters, meaning people entitled to government low-income housing assistance. Rental prices decreased, tenants stayed for shorter periods of time, lower-income renters with a shorter tenure, right, were more trouble. So when the big management companies started to purchase the buildings, take them over, there just seemed to be a shift in the type of person you'd see living in the neighborhood. So the demographic change was from dominantly Jewish to African-American. During World War II, employment in the defense industry brought large numbers of African-Americans to Los Angeles. And you had racially restrictive housing covenants to maintain neighborhood stability, up through the 1950s and African-Americans until the 60s were largely confined to the southern part of Los Angeles. After World War II, you had Jews moving into Los Angeles in large numbers. They were frequently shut out from the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant downtown elite by a wave of anti-Semitism in the 1920s, but they were able to enter retail Hollywood and West Side real estate Jew, Jewish elites formed a West Side power center around Century City, so just west of Cadillac Corning. Hamilton High School opened in 1931. To, until the mid-1960s, Hamilton and its surrounding neighborhoods was overwhelmingly white, Jewish, and upper middle class. Then the LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District, adopted an open school transfer policy for racial integration policies purposes in 1954. The open school transfer policy allowed students to enroll in schools outside of their neighborhood if space was available. Not until mid-1960s, the LA School Board began issuing open transfer permits to black students. So Hamilton High School was central to integration struggles on the west side of Los Angeles. Jewish and black groups formed uneasy coalitions to end school housing and employment segregation. And police brutality in the wake of World War II, the Holocaust, the Red Scare, black and Jewish organizations allied to challenge institutional anti-Semitism and anti-black racism. So when Proposition 14 passed in 1964, repealing the Fair Housing Act, only Jews and blacks voted overwhelmingly against the proposition. So only Jews and blacks, you know, wanted government rendering illegal racial discrimination when it comes to housing. Friday, September 20, 1963, members of the Congress of Racial Equality, so local clergy, black and white students from Hamilton and other high schools, began a hunger strike to protest a special report on de facto racial segregation. Many of the white students cited their Jewish background as reasons for speaking up. 17-year-old female Jewish student remarked, I went to temple first, then I thought I'd do something more for my religion and for my community. It's 
So blacks and Jews were pretty much united into the 1960s. Increasing numbers of white parents then sought to transfer their kids out of Hamilton High School, especially to the nearly all-white Culver City High School. In 1968, 8% of Hamilton students were black. By 1970, blacks were 20%. Hamilton's white enrollment dropped 22% from the previous year in 1970. In 1971-72, black enrollment reached 34%. Minority enrollment was 43%. 1972, black-white enrollment was even. And then for the first time, the L.A. Board of Education banned transfers of minority students into and white students out of Hamilton Hamilton High School to racially stabilize the school. Only two schools were included in the ban. Middle schools were also on the west side of Los Angeles. So school segregation and housing segregation relied upon one another because uh, housing prices were and are tied to the quality of public schooling. Transformation from a white to a black Hamilton High School facilitated a parallel change in this community of La Cienega Heights. So one white parent moving from the area warned, when the school goes all black, then the neighborhood goes all black. So in 1960, this neighborhood was 99.6% white. In 1970, it was 98% white. 1980, it was 25% white, 60% black, 9% Latino. Census tract to the north was 72% white. 1973, the Los Angeles Times issued a five-part special series on Hamilton High School. The series portrayed Hamilton so negatively that white transfers surged after it was printed. Los Angeles then issued a, LA Times then issued a statement highlighting Hamilton's positive attitudes and encouraging white parents to keep their kids at the school. First article was titled, Boredom and Tension Replace the Golden Age. So apparently Hamilton used to be a prestigious school and then it got wrecked. Once it was the very image of an all-American high school on the suburban fringes of Los Angeles, now it is an urban high school, though the pressures and troubles which accompany that change in status. Apartment houses and homes surround the rear and two sides of the 21-acre campus. Some veteran members of the faculty look yearningly back on that period, call it Hamilton's golden age. Their memory is... Classrooms full of parent-prodded, anxious-to-succeed students who did not question a teacher's authority, who often bit off more work than they were assigned. It was an exclusive prep school. After the Golden Age, white teachers, students, and administration accused black students of bringing violence, drugs, and conflict and militancy to the school. The Los Angeles Times article detailed white student fears. Whites talk in apprehensive tones about being jostled in the halls, not using the bathrooms because they might be beaten up or extorted for loose change by black students. White students tend to shun school dances and athletic events at night, largely because they or their parents fear violence at the hands of blacks. There are white students who stay away from school dances because blacks laugh at the way they dance. One coach, lamenting the problems he has getting some white boys to go out for sports, thinks the youngsters are not only unsure that they can measure up to blacks athletically, they're also fearful of them. So teachers struggled with educating a racially and socioeconomically diverse classroom. One Hamilton teacher commented, it's not unusual to have a kid who is the son of a doctor, another who's from a family of seven, does not know who his father is, and both these students are in the same class. Teachers complained that students were less willing to take command than in the old days, and that they exhibited more attitude. 
In the heights right now. Big old rabbits everywhere. We went from carrying backpacks to crack sacks, homie, within a matter of months. We wanted the first hood to get the gang injunction back in, what was that, 87? They actually tried it first on the uh, Premetta Flats in the uh, First Street East Coast. LA still got a G code. It still comes from the top of Cimarron down to our young homies. Hey, what's going on guys? It's beautiful there in West LA. My good people are going to show you around. I hope you guys are going to enjoy this video. We over here in West Los Angeles, Los Angeles Heights. You know, home of the rabbits. Playboy hood. Whole lot of gang shit. Whole lot of enemies. Block I originally grew up on, Corner Street. Oh, everything. Corner block, no warning shots. You know, a lot of niggas, different streets. They got Garth, Sherborne, Shenandoah. We on set for right now. This Stacktonio, 8FS. Playboy gang came out here from Harlem to tap in with the rabs. When you come in this alley, it's legendary. Even being from New York, I done seen this alley in New York. It's where a lot of the OGs did their music videos and shit. This shit set in stone out here. Big ass seat, like that. Yeah, the neighborhood's uh, changed. 1970, Hamilton High School qualified first time as an inner city school. So I got 13 additional teachers, and they got armed security guards. Hamilton administrators started to lock the school's gates during school hours. LAPD cars regularly patrolled the perimeter. As black students entered Hamilton in greater numbers, school became more militarized. Suspensions and arrests of black students rose steeply. Black students complained they felt as if they were in a prison. Los Angeles Times staff writer recounted the school's daily disciplinary routine. The signal that a security agent is needed is one bell, sounded throughout the school by a control device in the school's main office. One hears it periodically during the day, and it is an ominous sound. Everyone knows there is a problem, maybe trouble. 1978, the L.A. Unified School District announced that no student could transfer to a school in which the student's racial group made up more than 50% of the enrollment. Quick right here. Yeah, that's poor. My nigga Baby Creep right here, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> This is this, 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 hey, look, this, this, this side, you know, we forgot about over here, you know what I'm saying? We forgot about, but you know, we're going to make sure they know about us, though, real talk. We're going to make sure they know about us, man, real shit. I go by Big Sad 1900, man, you feel me? This Bedford Street, this the Heights right here, man, between Los Yanaga, Robert, that's somebody black as a Cadillac, I don't know who that is. Sawyer, everything in between, you feel me? All right, back to this uh, academic book. By 1984, minorities made up 80% of the Hamilton High School student population. Parents threatened to sue the, sue the school district unless they investigated the number of students that illegally migrated out of Hamilton to schools more west and more white. Parents replied they would just enroll their children in private school rather than return to Hamilton. Jews moved west to gain access to employment and housing. Forty years later, black families moved west into Cadillac Corning for the same reason. And now Cadillac Corning home to recent Latino immigrants in search of the same things. 1980, L.A. street gangs exploded into public consciousness. Rock cocaine became a big business. During a 1987 court case involving Cadillac Corning residents, an LAPD officer pleaded with the judge, can you imagine meeting 15-year-old kids who have $5,000 cash in their back pocket, meeting a high school junior who has the keys to a brand new Mercedes? Probation officer in the Cadillac Corning area, Reflected the frustration of the police and city prosecutors with the juvenile system. Try to rehabilitate some of them if you can. I tried it first to help some of the kids. I learned it was wasted effort. 
Law enforcement officials had been locking up black youth in Cadillac Corning. They argued it had not worked. Probation had not worked either. They wanted a more powerful tool. Hate it. it ain't too many people around here that like us, but it is what it is. So we ain't, we ain't tripping. You feel me? Nobody like us, nigga. Shit. All the shit happened at basically at West LA Division. The highest crime rate happened in Los Angeles Heights. You know, West LA is big. It's pretty big, but we got the highest, you know, crime rate. And just smack dead. Okay, and this is just about uh, three blocks south of the Orthodox Jewish community. Law enforcement had their prayers answered in the form of a gang injunction. So injunctions are civil lawsuits against neighborhoods based on the claim that gang behavior is a nuisance to non-gang-involved residents. Injunctions then restrict the movements of those labeled gang members. So if alleged gang members are listed on an injunction, they are not allowed to engage in behavior that is otherwise legal, including but not limited to congregating in groups of two or more, standing in public for more than five minutes, wearing certain clothes, making certain gestures. They can be arrested if they engage in any of these activities. Alleged gang members can be subjected to enhanced sentences of 10 years upon conviction. Gang injunctions are civil orders. Unless the enjoined are on probation or on parole, they're not entitled to public defenders. They choose to appeal the order. By 2003, 47% of African-American men in Los Angeles County between the ages of 21 and 24 run the Los Angeles County Gang Database. So half of African-American kids in L.A. County between the ages of 21 and 24 run the gang database. So L.A.'s first gang injunctions were implemented in Cadillac Corning, just about three blocks south of where these shootings happened. So it was not the area with the most murders or assaults, but it was a threat to the boundaries of white, middle-class, upper-class Jewish areas. So part of the reason Cadillac Corning was targeted for the injunction is that it threatened geographic, racial, and class separation and control that threatened the Jewish community. Despite the sanitization of race in gang injunction policy, fear of black men and stereotypes about black families was central to the rationale for the injunction. Race is central in the evidence that was presented to attain the gang injunction. The injunction was meticulously designed to control the movement of black youth by criminalizing activities and behavior that is unremarkable and legal in other jurisdictions. So this injunction shored up racial boundaries protecting a largely Jewish community. In the 1980s, John, a white man, was a city prosecutor assigned to the West Los Angeles area. He remembers asking West LAPD officers what the worst area in the division was. They took him to the corner of Cadillac Avenue and Corning Street. It was just two major streets where all the criminal activity was. It was where all the problems were occurring. Officials knew that where you go when you want to pick up some crimes. If you walked or drove through Cadillac Corning, you'd think the neighborhood just has young black males by the looks of those who dare to walk outside. This police officer characterized black gangs as far more threatening than Latino gangs. They don't even do the things that you'll sometimes see the Mexican gangs do, like play football or have a picnic. They have only one purpose in life, to profit from crime. Like the Mexican gangs, where there is a very strict hierarchy and strict decisions as to who will commit a crime. In the black gangs, there is less respect for that hierarchy, and all the players are scrambling to be the number one guy. We don't live next door to Shaquille O'Neal and LeBron don't live down the street. You know what I'm saying? We can walk outside. The, 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 nigga, the nigga that we look up to is the nigga that's getting the money, which is the pimp, the dope dealer. You know what I'm saying? The, the nigga that got the, go, the candy-painted uh, bins and the fact, you know, Cartiers and Rolexes. We looked up to drug dealers and pimps. They trying to, what's that word? 
that, what's that word? That, that gentrification? Oh, I don't know if I said it right. Yeah, but they trying to push us about this bitch, but we ain't going nowhere. You know what I'm saying? They've been trying to do that for 10 years. We ain't going nowhere, though. Like, the homies gonna always be here. You can go. Okay, let's uh, watch a little bit of the Jim Bowden, Adam Green debate here. So... Our, our logic, the way you think, we think differently. And, and it's a Christian trait. Isn't logic like a pagan pre-Christian? No, no, no. What do you yes, mean? Yes, it is. Pagan. There was no logic before Christianity? What, 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 um, that, there could be and there probably was. But what I'm saying is, is that Christianity itself has its own logic. It's unique. And the, all, all I'm simply put to you that it is simply, I mean, I'm not trying to be complicate the whole issue. I'm just simply trying to say that uh, Christianity is, is, is a religion which needs needs to be preserved in, in a sense. The loss of it, there's not, no alternative as I see it. No feasible alternative without without Christianity. What do we resort to? Uh, Islam, what are the alternatives of no religions as you advocate? To me, that's not an option. So let's get the Christians out the way. What are you left? Stop there. Would what you, you rather have America Islam, be Muslim Judaism, than atheists? Look, Islam, Judaism are atheistic rather than nothing. Then you. Then you, yes. Any belief yes. in the God. What's up, Andrew? Um, any, any, any. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Okay. Get off my fucking show, you stupid boomer. Wasting our fucking time with this shit. <laughs> Move to the fucking call-ins. Unbelievable. No, you're out. Kick, kick from the studio. What the <laughs> fuck was this? Out. You're done. Had to come downstairs and fucking do that shit. Out of here. Okay. Thanks for bogarting the whole fucking stream, Andrew. We appreciate it very much. Jim Bowden has been kicked from the stream. We're gonna move to Collins early, but before before we do that, I would I guess I will continue what I think might be a better representation of Jim's argument. Um, okay. Let's get back to the Playboy Gangster Crips hood in West Los Angeles, about three or four blocks south. Go all shooters. around the world. Home is home, no matter what. You know what I'm saying? So that they get tour with this bitch, got nowhere to go. A nigga coming right here. They can tear sure. all these building downs and, and have motherfucking dirt. A nigga still gonna pull up right here. Like, you know what I'm saying? Nigga, right here is where we gonna be. 2010, my homegirl lost her life. And it's crazy because, what, just... Five years after, a little boy got killed in the same spot. Like, literally in the same spot. Should be crazy. That shit, that shit bad, though, bro. Like, the, killing the innocent. Like, I'm gonna keep it real. Every nigga right here that game bay, we kind of know what we signed up for. So, like, you know what I'm saying? We know what come with it, jail and death. That's what we signed up for. But, motherfucker, we ain't out to kill innocent people, though. Like, let the little like, kids grow up and live. You know what I'm saying? People ain't got no aim nowadays. That's what it is. They ain't like the wrong shit. Right, back to this academic book. The greater comfort with Latinos extended beyond gangs into stereotypes about family values, competence, and morality. So this one officer argued that the police ignored black gangs based on assumptions about family structure. Quote, Hispanic gangs come from families with strong family values. You're not supposed to say it, but it was clear that in the back black culture, they didn't have that kind of value system that the Hispanic families had. God forbid. And it carried over into the gangs. A lot of times in the early to mid-1980s, the feeling was as bad as it gets. You can call this prejudice, but the black gangs will never get it together. 
the Hispanic gangs sold more pot. Black gangs were more ruthless at the time they were selling crack cocaine, but they were not organized. They, one person would kill another in a second. There was no respect for hierarchy. Law enforcement rested on their laurels, thinking they would never get really organized because we see in the black community they can't pull their families together. So early on, the police saw the black gangs as a problem, but they did not expect black gangs to be able to run an organized drug operation. Now, regarding the difference between the Italian mafia, the brown shirts of Nazi Germany, and black gangs, an officer testified, all that is missing is the intelligent gang member who has a head on his shoulders. So according to law enforcement, black gangs were violent, ruthless, savagely aggressive, immoral, and out of control, but they supposedly did not have the smarts that Italian-American gangsters or German Nazis possessed. Law enforcement quickly realized their mistaken assumption about social disorganization. They tried unsuccessfully to stop the Playboy... Uh, What's the name of this group? The Playboy Gangster Crips. Playboy Gangster Crips, the PBG's flourishing drug trade. Los Angeles Times article entitled Drug Peddling Street Gang Holds Neighborhood in Fear mentions only two murders. One was the murder of a 14-year-old who was a gang member. The other murder covered was that of the white youth on the motorcycle. So drug buyers have been robbed, raped, or gunned down. Late 1986, a 16-year-old White boy involved in a business misunderstanding with a playboy gangster drug dealer was killed by a lookout who, upon receiving a signal, stepped out of an apartment building and fired a gun as the youth drove off on his motorcycle. All right, based on a misunderstanding, they murdered a customer. For years, wealthier whites from nearby neighborhoods enjoyed Cadillac Corning as a convenient drug market. But after Cadillac Corning garnered attention when several white drug patrons were robbed and one was murdered. So the realtors, realtors in Corning, they weren't able to sell homes. The whole realtors were saying, we're seeing a change. Property values are going up and the street is looking better. Right, that's this area in the last uh, 20 years. I've been in the neighborhood for three years. I own two buildings. It is up to the landlords to get rid of the neighborhood's crime problem. Landlords need to raise rents, renovate their buildings to get rid of the riffraff. If any other landlords are interested, talk to me after the meeting. So the predominantly white, home-owning, probably largely Jewish group of residents was also concerned about the neighborhood's black youth. Well, perhaps they're Jewish. I have no idea. They have no respect for cars or anything else. They will not move for cars that come into the intersection. The other day, a car clipped one of the kids. The driver was black. The kid on the skateboard was black, so they laughed it off. Fear that if the driver had been another color, it would not have been settled so easily. Hamilton High students are a reliable topic. Hamilton is essentially a two-track school. Campus consists of the original school and two magnet schools. The two magnets have larger percentages of white students, high test scores, and better college attendance rates than the predominantly black and Latino original school. The majority of the firepower for the 64-square-mile west division of the LAPD is concentrated within the boundaries of Cadillac Corning. Local council office assigns a field deputy to drive through the streets, alleyways of the neighborhood daily to address graffiti. Media reinforce the stigmatization of the neighborhood by referring to Cadillac Corning as a tough pocket that the good forces of gentrification have not been able to revitalize. Grading over here, and uh, it's, it was basically a Jewish community. But uh, once they started letting us get access to a um, uh, uh, better living, homie, a lot of our parents migrated over here, and this is how we ended up in these shithole apartments. Ain't no better than South Central, man. You know what I'm saying? You go to South Central, them dudes living in houses. Come over here, man. We got apartments in alley. We caged up like we in the penitentiary. Well, what happens is 
They get us fucked up with geographics. Oh, we over here by Lost Yeah, we over by Beverly Hills. Okay, this and that. Nah, this ain't no gimmick, homie. This shit was treacherous over here. A lot of our homies migrated off the east side, and how our parents got over here, like I said, was due uh Right, back to this academic book. Throughout the early mid-20th century, police in American cities strove to keep their distance from the neighborhoods they policed. Detachment was not only intended as an antidote to corruption, but a way to shield departments from public scrutiny. Professionalization gave the appearance that policing could be scientifically efficient and apolitical. But social unrest, high-profile cases of police brutality, consistently high crime rates were a few factors that sparked misgivings about professionalized policing in the 1970s. So two prominent models for policing emerge, broken windows policing and community policing. They entail distinct roles for community and law enforcement. Community policing involves cooperation between police and residents in the development of crime prevention strategies. Broken windows policing places emphasis on order maintenance by officers with community members in a supporting role. Many urban police officers implement both strategies simultaneously. Practice of broken windows policing relies on a racial ideology that connects the dark foreign other to unpredictable chaos and criminality. The disorderly people targeted by police are overwhelmingly lower-class black and Latino who are using public space. So the shoring up of threatened racial lines develop Cadillac Corning as a borderland. Borderlands are places of untamed and destabilizing ambiguity. They are geopolitical spaces in flux. There is a lot at stake, which is why community groups, police, and policymakers dedicate so much time and resources to borderlands. They try to turn upheaval into stasis and reestablish lines racial lines. The racist police and practices that increased this militarization of Hamilton High School and Cadillac Corning ended up stigmatizing the neighborhood. While police had a monopoly on force, wealthy residents had political connections and resources that even the police did not. The author says, I want people to oppose LA's treatment of youth because they feel it viscerally and ethically because the knowledge enters them and becomes entwined in their insides, not because investigating murders of youth locking them up is getting too costly. It's on, homie. Homies out here with coops, cutlasses, little loke out here with the rancho, uh, and the and the, and, the, and the Cadillac bumping computer love. His spot, like I said, the spot was right there in the back. So anytime the homie Lil Insane come in that alley playing do 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 do, we like kids. It's 1985 is the number. We out here. We hear the big homie, homie giving us money, going to the store, checking the trap, watch the block, cuz who out here crashing out of shit like that. We kids. Big Kurt and uh, 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 Dirk, they was up out of Compton. They the ones taught us the word one time. They came from out of Compton. We didn't know what one time meant. And they said, you only got one time to run. So this is like 85, 86. They say one time, we running. We was uh, all up in this building getting cracking, homie. These apartments was open up to us. People opened their homes to us. It was more like a family thing. This is 1985, 86, when all this was up and running. The gang injunction happened in 87 because it got so bad over here with the influx of drugs, you know, people, shootings, murders, shootings, a lot of shit was going on. Then my two little homies, Boo and Devin, they got killed right here on this corner. So when that happened, that's when they really kind of like wanted to shut this down, homie. And, uh, but that injunction didn't last, but we were still outside. They told us we had to be in the house at seven o'clock. Yeah, all right, <laughs> we was outside, we didn't care. But uh, back then. Okay, so. We're getting more information about the shooting suspect. Now we're being told he's an Asian male with a goatee driving a white 
compact vehicle. So the Los Angeles Jewish community is high on alert following two possibly related shootings of Orthodox Jewish men in, in this neighborhood in the last uh, 24 hours. Okay, first victim was shot in the arm. They're Asian male wearing a black mask, black glasses, black sweater, armed with a 9mm handgun. And that's when LAPD was treacherous. You know what I mean? They was a gang within themselves. Home crash. All these departments, man, was uh it was it was it was really it was it was a lot of systematic shit with that was going on with them. Politics, man, planting guns on homies, you know, drugs, all taking our drugs. They used to take us up by Hamilton, strip us out, take our money and tell us to walk back. That's how dirty they was, man. But uh hey. I could turn the blind out of corruption. Shit, I was doing wrong. I ain't tripping. So, have that little shit. I go make it right back. But this is the stuff that they used to do to us on this block. Okay, that will do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.